0: Hey everyone, welcome to The Drive Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Atia. This podcast, my website, and my weekly newsletter all focus on the goal of translating the science of longevity into something accessible for everyone. Our goal is to provide the best content in health and wellness, full stop, and we've assembled a great team of analysts to make this happen. If you enjoy this podcast, we've created a membership program that brings you far more in-depth content. If you want to take your knowledge of this space to the next level, at the end of this episode, I'll explain what those benefits are. Or if you want to learn more now, head over to peteratiamd.com forward slash subscribe. Now, without further delay, here's today's episode. (laughs) My guest this week is Dr. Paul Gruel. Paul's an internist, an internal medicine physician. He's an author. He's a speaker. He's really focused on lifestyle changes for metabolic health. And a lot of this was brought on by his own journey, his own experience of losing almost 100 pounds at two points in his life, but the second time being in medical school. And that's a weight he's kept off since that time. Paul is an incredibly empathic figure, and I think that comes across here in this interview. He's also co-authored a New York Times bestseller called Genius Foods, which is really a hardline look at, you know, as he describes it, the active poisoning of the food supply. Here, we talk quite a bit about this, and I challenge him a little bit on on that. Overall, I found this just to be one of the more fun discussions I've had in a long time. And in fact, at the end, after we stopped recording, or maybe while we were still recording, I even made the comment that I felt like the last. I don't know, 20, 30, 40 minutes of this podcast. I actually forgot we were even recording a podcast. That's how comfortable we were in bantering back and forth. Paul does something interesting in this podcast that I begrudgingly accept, which is he he keeps turning the tables and asking me questions. So I apologize in advance for that. There's, I think I'm talking more in this podcast than I would like to be. And that's because I'm answering a lot of Paul's questions. But hopefully, I'm providing insight on things that I don't get to talk about often. One thing I do talk about in this study that I have never spoken about publicly, not for any sort of procedural reason other than just I just haven't had a need to, is I do talk in some depth about one of the big NUSI funded studies that looks at energy expenditure. And this is a study that's generated more controversy than I can. Imagine, but I I certainly offer my two cents on it. So we talk a lot about obesity, but we also talk a lot about body composition and, you know, we end the discussion by getting into some really kind of nerdy experimental ideas. He wants me to try on myself, including a very, very high carb, low fat diet under a certain set of parameters, which truthfully, I I think I'm interested in trying. So we talk a lot about that. And we talk a lot about endocrinology and a whole bunch of other things, metabolic health, insulin resistance, stuff that people are super interested in, caloric restriction, fasting, all of those things. They're here in this episode. So I hope you enjoy my discussion with Dr. Paul Grewal. Hey, Paul,
1: thanks for being here, man. Thanks for having me, Peter. It's an honor to be here. I listen to your podcast religiously. It's kind of like not feeling alone anymore in medicine. I kind of get to talk with the doctors. Of course, your voice is much slower in person because I listen to all of my podcasts at like 2x speed which is a little thing we picked up memorizing medical school lectures, but
0: hopefully I don't sound like a chipmunk when other people are listening to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, since I don't listen to my podcast, I don't really know what I sound like on 2X. <laughs> I'll slow it down even more just so that it doesn't sound too fast when it's all sped up. So in the introduction, I talked a little bit about your practice. So I think the folks listening to this get a sense of a little bit of what you do in your day job. But I kind of want to start with a bit of a your own story, which I know. And after we got to know each other, I remember one day sitting down having a coffee and you were telling me the story and I was, I was surprised. I mean, it's actually quite an impressive fluctuation in weight that you'd undergone. So rather than me try to retell it poorly, can you retell me the story?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think, We're all kind of burdened with certain crosses to bear and uh, we don't always get to choose those things. So for me, I had been wanted to be a doctor since I was five or six years old. There was probably some subliminal coercion being the son of an Indian father. But your father's not a doctor, is he? No, he's a farmer, actually grows flowers in New Jersey, but he's an engineer. It wasn't like, oh, you have to be a doctor. It was like, oh, you could be a fireman or a doctor. (laughs) And it was like, you want to be a doctor, right? Yeah. So I didn't really know anything more granular or specific than that. But what I found myself in was a kind of tricky situation because my parents, they met in Europe. They had both come from kind of third world conditions growing up. So my mother was basically picking snails from under rocks for protein in Cyprus. And my father was in Punjab, India. And was actually so much of a troublemaker that my grandmother kicked him out and he left the country and they fled to London. Fled is a kind of strong word. So they met in London. And then when they moved here, both of them had been totally normal weight. My dad was a wrestler and they both put on 15, 20 pounds right off the bat. And when I was born, they kind of fed me whatever was considered the kind of standard diet. And they didn't realize that the food supply was being actively kind of polluted or poisoned, which I believe it is. And by the time I was 12 years old, I was kind of on the 95th percentile of weight and I had severe childhood asthma. So I was put on prednisone for six months and I basically ballooned out where I was basically unrecognizable. So I had an extra 50 or 60 pounds as a 12 year old. I could barely exercise. And yeah, so I basically have gone through my life, the first half of my life, just as what we would describe as a fat person. And that has big effects on self-perception. It has big effects on how others perceive you. And there's a peculiar American sort of ethos around it being one of the few things that we're still allowed to be discriminating or discriminatory against. And so it was not a fun situation. And I kind of felt at a loss for how to fix it. And by the time I got to college, I'd probably tipped the scales around 2, 275, 280 pounds. And I just started, I said, okay, I need to do something about this because my life is really impoverished. And I know that there's a lot of talk these days about just kind of body acceptance, et cetera. But this is, I don't know that I've met a single patient of mine who was ever comfortable or happy in their body when they were overweight, and it's almost always a demon for people, and it was for me at that time when I got to college. I basically went on a very low-calorie diet, so I have like a diary of every morsel of food I had eaten for, you know, a year and a half, and it was about eleven to twelve hundred calories a day, and I was doing six miles a day on the treadmill, and I lost ninety. 90 or so pounds. And then as soon as the stress of medical school hit, it bounced all the way back up to 260. And then the calorie counting didn't work. So I mean, there's interesting lessons to be had the whole way across. So part of the reason that people find it difficult to lose weight after they've already lost it and regained it is, as you lose weight, adipocytes shrink. And when you regain the weight, they don't just grow back to normal size, they actually multiply. And then each one of those fat cells does not stop growing until it's reached the size of the
0: original adipocyte. So the rubber banding effect becomes more and more difficult. I wasn't actually aware of that. So how significant a weight loss is required to trigger that new expression of adipocytes that instead of simply regaining size, they multiply. This has mostly been demonstrated in animal models. So
1: I'm not sure about what the effect is in humans, but I think probably some of the counter regulatory mechanisms to prevent weight loss, my suspicion would be that once those start to kick in, that there's probably some epigenetic changes that kind of dictate that. But I don't think it's quantifiable at this point.
0: Although it seems imminently testable. I mean, we could certainly demonstrate that in human subjects. I'm curious if anybody's, done. you know, I wonder if Rudy Libel has done that You could take fat biopsies of people during a period of weight reduction and weight regain and things like that. Teleologically, I wonder what the rationale is for that. Interestingly, I think, at least anecdotally, I see a couple of different phenotypes
1: of overweight people in my kind of clinical experience. I find the people for whom they had childhood obesity, I find it much more difficult to treat than the kind of college athlete who has gained weight in adulthood. I would agree with that. Yeah, And so I don't know what the mechanisms are there that dictate that, but probably I would say at some point your kind of body fat or body weight set point has been determined. And it's just a matter of stop for the kind of person who gains weight later in life. It's kind of a matter of just stop abusing the system and the system will re-regulate where somebody who is overweight from a young age, I think that's what their body Wants. And it's hard to, again, quantify those effects because I think we just don't understand the physiology other than in puberty, obviously, there's a big determinant of how many, where your fat cells are, etc. You told me a story once about something to do with the cupboards in your house. Oh my gosh, yes. So it's interesting because humans, as we kind of go through the pruning process of our brain development, we create these shortcuts. And a lot of them, once they become shortcuts, they're kind of buried Mm -hmm. deeper in the brain. But occasionally when I do a talk, one of the first slides is my kitchen cupboards in my apartment. And it's a picture of all of the kitchen cupboards. They're all open. And people would come over and they'd be like, why are all your cupboards open? And I couldn't answer them, I was like, oh, I'm just absent-minded. And then my mom had come over and seen my cupboards and she's like, oh, I know why your cupboards are open. She's like, I used to hide the one box of cookies in the house that we saved for when guests were coming over in one of the cupboards and I knew you were looking for them. So I try to put them in a different cupboard each time. And so the way that I knew that I had checked every cupboard was to leave it open. And so it's interesting because I think there's a lot of talk going back to the blame question. I think I'm really solidly on the environmental side rather than the parental side of the food environment question, right? So my parents knew that I was overweight. They knew that it was going to be disastrous for me growing up as an adult, if that's how I stayed. And they tried everything they could to prevent it. I mean, my dad would like lock me out of the house and tell me to go for a run around the block. And in hindsight, it's the classic kind of hyperinsulinemia sort of driving down energy levels when you try to reduce intake. I mean, I would literally go down to the stream, splash water
0: on my face and come back up to make it look like I had broken a sweat. But I mean, this sounds like almost the type of stories we hear about kids with Prader-Willi syndrome, Yeah, which for the listener, I guess, is Prader-Willi is a genetic syndrome. I don't think it's entirely clear what, at least I don't recall exactly what the particular metabolic insult is, though it is clearly a fuel partitioning issue. But the children with Prader-Willi syndrome are morbidly obese, grotesquely obese typically, and yet they have hyperphagia. They can't stop eating. I've met a couple of parents that have kids with Prader-Willi and They talk about locking the refrigerator and even more extreme examples that I won't go into about ways that you have to basically prevent the kids from doing anything and everything they can to eat anything. And the reason I bring this up is you see, it doesn't suggest to me that this is just an energy imbalance issue. It seems that there's a regulatory part that's broken, like there's a feedback loop that's broken that says, Obviously, the child would Prater Willie, or you. In the case of being sort of thirteen-year-old version of you at walking around at three hundred pounds, you certainly had enough stored energy. Why weren't you able to access that so that you had the energy to run, or didn't feel the need to tear the kitchen apart to get every cookie?
1: Yeah. So I think it's hard to describe the mismatch between what you're being told at that time. So when I was in my 20s, I guess it was early 2000s and kind of low carb or keto diets weren't really on the radar in a appreciable way or they had fallen out long enough ago that they weren't part of the mainstream kind of approach. But for me, and this actually has been one of my major biases that I'm aware of as a physician is that because fast forwarding, when I lost the weight the second time, it was with a kind of low carb diet and the weight just, melted off of me. It was like a silver bullet. My hunger levels auto-regulated. I wasn't a different person. I had no difference in my willpower. I had no difference in my discipline levels, but I just wasn't hungry. And so for me, the effect size was so large and powerful. I was like, why don't I understand this? This doesn't make any sense. And so then it completely flipped in my brain the admonishment, the kind of beating yourself up for being unable to stick to a diet. So I think the energy partitioning question is really important. I think there's a lot of heterogeneity in people. So 80% of obese people are insulin resistant 20% 20% or not. The healthy thing to do with excess calories is to store them as subcutaneous fat. So at least metabolically speaking, you just get fatter and fatter and you can stay metabolically healthy. I think insulin resistance essentially occurs when your fat cells are tapped out and they're kind of saying it's an energy toxicity situation. And I think that's also why we see in South Asian populations, they get diabetes and vascular disease at a much lower body weight they have less ability to store fat subcutaneously. What are your thoughts on kind of, I know there's a lot of debate about the metabolic advantage or perceived metabolic or caloric advantage when you're eating low carb versus not. I think you don't need more than 100 calories a day difference in terms of the metabolic advantage to explain a huge effect in weight.
0: That's true. And I think prior to two thousand. 2013, 2012, I would have predicted that fully half of the efficacy of carbohydrate restriction was through this, in part because I probably experienced that. I'm probably one of the people in whom that phenotype manifested itself, which was once I switched over to a ketogenic diet, I couldn't eat enough to maintain my weight. I was force feeding myself over 4,000 calories a day. And I was quite a meticulous guy when it came to this stuff. And my training was very dialed and I was probably between 4,000 and, I mean, say 3,600 to 4,400 calories per day. And even when I spent time inside of metabolic chambers and looked at my resting metabolic rate, I mean, my resting metabolic rate was about 1,900 to 2,100 calories per day, which at my body weight was three or 400 calories above predicted. So there was no denying that my metabolic rate was higher. Of course, that's not an experiment. So that doesn't necessarily demonstrate anything, but it certainly suggested to me that I was simply expending energy at an inefficiency. So people talk about metabolic efficiency. Really, that's a metabolic inefficiency. I was, or at least unless I was dissipating that extra energy through heat or something else. The other half of the equation I thought at the time was, although I couldn't explain it, was there's some reduction in appetite. I mean, you just aren't a slave to your appetite the way you are. And that's why there were times I found myself eating when I wasn't even really hungry, just because I sort of knew I needed this many calories to sort of stay at the weight that I was at. Because by that point, I'd probably lost 35 pounds and I didn't need to lose another ounce. I think after seeing the results of the study funded at NUSI. This was the pilot study that unfortunately never had a follow-up study. So I've never actually spoken about this study in detail publicly. And I don't plan to now because it's not close enough to me that I remember it truthfully. But this was a very small study. Gosh, I can't even remember how many subjects were in it. But it was 16 or 17 is my recollection across four sites very complicated study and very rigorously done. I mean, I know that there are people in the low carb community that want to be very critical of all of the shortcomings of that study. And to be true, there were shortcomings, but not from a lack of trying. I mean, this was a level of rigor that in my opinion has never been brought to a metabolic ward study or an indirect calorimetry study, because you had to be able to calibrate four chambers across the United States with a single engineering firm in charge of that. The meals were prepared meticulously. All this stuff was done really well. The experiment took 16 overweight or 17 overweight subjects, and there was no randomization. Because again, this was not meant to be a definitive experiment. This was meant to be the pilot experiment that was going to do two things primarily. One, determine if there was a signal to be seen in a hypothesis. And two, work out the very unsexy logistical kinks that come with doing a multi-site indirect calorimetry study of this nature. So there was no randomization. So the subjects are taken. Each patient is their own control and they are run in for four weeks in a metabolic chamber. And of course they're in a ward for four weeks into and out of the chamber for two day stays, a couple times a week. So that basically makes it very difficult for them to be eating anything that's not completely prescribed. And the purpose of this run-in was to determine their baseline energy expenditure. Didn't they lose weight during that run That's correct. So in an ideal world, you should not be losing weight during the run-in when they were on the standard American diet. Or a standard American diet formulation, which would then give the researchers a sense of, okay, this is what Paul's energy expenditure is. And of course it's fake because they're not in the real world. So you have to exercise them every day at a fixed prescribed amount that you can consistently do. And at the end of that four week period, everybody gets crossed over to a ketogenic diet that is isocaloric. So same number of calories, but a total macronutrient switch. So in theory, a very elegant experiment, but yes, you point out the first Real limitation of the study was that the majority of the patients, and again, I mean there's somebody out there reading this or listening to this right now that's getting upset because I'm off by a little bit. Directionally, I believe most of the patients lost a non-trivial amount of weight during the run-in. And of course, there are lots of explanations for it. One explanation is that if the alternative hypothesis is correct, so let's go back for a moment. The null hypothesis of this experiment is there is no distinction between calorie type when it comes to energy expenditure. In technical terms, that is the null hypothesis of this experiment. A macronutrient switch at isocaloric levels from, say, a standard American diet to a ketogenic diet should have no impact on energy expenditure. And that's the holy grail of measuring energy expenditure is using indirect calorimetry. So when the subjects lost weight, one argument could be, if the alternative hypothesis is correct, then whatever diet they were placed on in the study was quote unquote a better diet than the study that they were on in their pre-existing world. And that's possible. That's probably the best explanation I've heard, but I haven't read any of the follow-up papers or anything else. Rudy Leibel, Eric Ravison, Steve Smith, Kevin Hall, at some point, hearing from them, and I'm sure they've already spoken about this in detail, they might offer other hypotheses. When they were crossed over to the ketogenic diet, the increase in energy expenditure continued. I believe that the delta- of energy expenditure from when they were on a ketogenic diet that was isocaloric to a standard American diet. I believe it was about hundred calories per day. There were other issues there using doubly labeled water. The difference was much larger, but again, doubly labeled water historically not thought of as accurate a measure as indirect calorimetry. And I think the only thing that I sort of take issue with is that the study was somehow reported as definitive when in reality it was a pilot study. And people on both sides of this debate have really dug their heels in and said, on the one hand, well, this absolutely definitively proves that there is no difference in energy expenditure on different macronutrients. And I don't see it that way. I don't think the study could assess that. But on the other hand, I think it makes the case that if there is a signal there, if there is a delta in energy expenditure, if people like me were truly somehow expending four or 500 calories more as a result of the macronutrient choice, one, that is not a universal finding. If it were a universal finding, there should have been a much bigger signal on a study of 16 or 17 people. So I think there has to be great heterogeneity there. And secondly, it's probably on average much more subtle than what's described. Now, what I think got lost in a lot of the follow-up on this was there were a billion secondary measures in that study that looked at appetitive changes, looked at mixed meal tests and looked at a whole bunch of other changes, and those certainly suggested that the patients had a different appetitive behavior when they were on the ketogenic diet versus the standard American diet. So, how has all of this changed my thinking? Because in the end, if experiments don't change the way you think, you have to question why you're doing experiments. My view today is that there are a subset of patients, probably I was one of them, perhaps you were even one of them, where you switch them over to low-carbohydrate diets, and through some inefficiency, they actually tend to need far more calorie unit inputs to generate the same amount of ATP And again, where that energy is lost, is it either an increase in involuntary expenditure or heat? I don't really know. But I think that more patients than we appreciate simply eat less because they are able to basically eat themselves.
1: Yeah. I think one of the ward studies they had done in the 60s or 70s, I think they had put people on the ketogenic diet. And I think the average spontaneous calorie intake was about 1,400 calories for those patients. Yeah,
0: this is very important that you bring that up because what most people forget is in the, I think it was the Korean War, but I can't recall. There was one study that where Ansel Keys looked at a bunch of conscientious objectors and I, I don't think it could have been World War II. I think it had to be a little later, but maybe it was Vietnam. I don't recall. These people were put on 12 to 1,400 calories a day and that is still viewed as one of our greatest examples of human starvation. So I take it back. It may have been World War II, but the point is we have an experiment where people were fed basically cabbage and potatoes and modest amounts of meat, but the goal was to replicate the environment of a war-torn Europe, and they were eating 12 to 1,400 calories per day And they literally lost their mind. Some of these patients actually were starting to eat their own extremities, chew off their fingers. They had developed signs and symptoms of psychoses. I mean, they became really, really. This is the type of study you could never do today. In fact, the only reason I think Keyes was permitted to do this is these people were conscious objectors to the war, and they were basically, you're going to suffer one way or the other. But why that's interesting to me is you see all of these studies where people sort of can opt into being completely satiated on 12 to 1400 calories per day of a ketogenic diet. Now, look, I could talk my way on both sides of this. I've become skeptical of all of these studies because I just don't know if the quantities are correct. Were they really on 1400 calories a day or was it 1800? And so I don't know, but again, it suggests a signal there and giving you a clinical example that again is anecdote, but boy, it sure seems clear to me, is when we put patients on hypocaloric intermittent fasts, so we typically do a five-day fast before people do what I'm doing, which is the water-only stuff, we want them to do at least one, ideally maybe two to three rounds of five days at very low calorie. We typically put them between 500 and 750 calories per day. There are lots of different ways you can do this. You can buy a commercial product that's slightly higher called Prolon, which is sort of between 750 and 950 calories per day quite high in carbohydrate. And we, of course, have a litany of menus that we give them that is exactly tailored to whatever the heck they want to be eating within some prescribed macros. Well, almost without exception, and I can only think of one exception, when patients take a higher fat, lower carb version of that diet, they always find the fast easier than if they take a higher carb, lower fat version of that diet under the same caloric conditions. So
1: do you think it's a function of a drop in insulin either way, or is it that it's like a matter of enzyme inducibility where you need some time to upregulate the kind of fat-burning machinery?
0: I don't know how much of it is. Part of it could simply be explained by the beta-hydroxybutyrate and the feedback loops on the brain through other appetite-suppressing hormones. God, it's been so long since I've even looked at Like I can't remember if even malonyl-CoA goes up and maybe that's playing a role on appetite. So my intuition is it's not just explained by insulin because if it were, couldn't we look at patients with type 1 diabetes and minimize the amount of insulin we're giving them and reproduce this phenotype. But to my knowledge, that's not been done, has it?
1: I mean, they do lose weight quite rapidly. The question is, are they hungry?
0: Yeah, exactly. They're clearly losing weight, but they're incredibly catabolic as well. They're shedding muscle just as rapidly as they're shedding fat. And it's so easy to get mired
1: in the debate. I mean, even myself, I know and knew 10 years ago that I respond really well to a low carb diet. And yet, The more you read these studies, you realize how much you don't know. And then you start to toy with macros and doing, trying to preserve muscle while losing weight. And for me, it's just time and again, I come up empty when I try to do just calorie restriction over either low carb or fasting. I mean, again, that's neither here
0: nor there. It's kind of anecdotal evidence, but. Well, let me ask you a question about what you said. So you've described a phenotype and by the way, we throw this word phenotype around. I think everybody listening knows what we're talking about, but phenotype is basically just a biological description of how something looks. So your phenotype could be your height, your hair color, whatever, but the term can also be described more broadly around a type of person whose physiology might respond in a certain way. So, so you described this phenotype of people who respond very favorably to carbohydrate restriction. You were one of them. I was one of them. In your clinical experience, which when it comes to obesity is so much bigger than mine because it's not really anything I know about or practice, what percentage of your patients fit into that bucket of I call this the easiest bucket to treat. Just take the carbs away and everything goes down. Is that a third of people? Is that half of them? So it's
1: interesting. So when I first, so it was fourth year of medical school when I kind of, it clicked for me in this way. And then it was in my resident clinic in Queens. I started to kind of, we're memorizing tables of Anti diabetic agents, right? So you've got, I guess they didn't have SGL2s, but the uh, gliburides and this and that and the insulin. And and we were doing first time diagnoses of diabetes in the hospital and giving people kind of like this potato roll and fruit cup and saying there's 55 grams of carbs. This is how many units of insulin you give to your patient. And by the time I was towards the end of residency, I would have a single sheet of paper. I would walk into the person's room and say, you have two options. You can get the insulin. You can be on three different medications, which, by the way, I mean insulin is the disease. The hyperglycemia is just a kind of byproduct of the hyperinsulinemia. We're having hyperinsulinemia for ten plus or fifteen plus. Well, oh, see, I right? think it's
0: the opposite. I think that the hyperglycemia is the disease, and the hyperinsulinemia is sort of the byproduct of it. Well, I don't know. Jason Fung, who was on the podcast a while ago, argued the opposite. I think the two are not incompatible. It probably is a little bit of both, but I think they're both really bad. Maybe I'd rephrase it that way. I think high levels of glucose are incredibly destructive and I think high levels of insulin are incredibly destructive and therefore treating high levels of glucose with high levels of insulin strikes me as The worst idea, it's certainly on the list of top five worst ideas in medicine.
1: The way that I think of it in terms of the disease process is, so hyperinsulinemia will keep your blood sugar within a physiologic range for many years before your blood sugar starts to go up. So by the time people are getting diagnosed with diabetes and requiring insulin, their total daily insulin requirement is 50, 100 units. I see what
0: you're saying. Yes, yes, yes.
1: Whereas, right, the physiologic insulin output is probably, what, 20 to 25 units a day. So before you ever have your A1C budge up, your insulin levels are probably sky high for quite some time.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, we see this when we do OGTTs with frequent sampling.
1: Right. And so I guess hyperinsulinemia is probably caused by not hyperglycemia per se, but by energy toxicity. So each cell is tapped out in terms of its storage capability. And they're all saying no more. And so the insulin levels have to go up and they will go up. And then the inflammatory cascade will occur in the adipocytes. And I guess there is still some of a debate. When we were learning in medical school, it was that the inflammation causes the insulin resistance. But I think it's the simpler Occam's razor explanation is... All of your cells are full with energy. They don't want any more. The insulin levels have to go up to drive energy back into the cell. And when the insulin levels can't keep up, meaning you're pumping out three, four times your physiologic kind of quota and the pancreas is no longer able to keep up, then your blood sugar will rise. That's kind of my mental model of the disease process.
0: I don't know. I mean, all I know is I know less now than I knew five years ago for sure. And I guess the problem with biology, there's a counterexample to everything we think we know. If you look at the central dogma of biology, there are counterexamples, right? A prion is a counterexample to the central dogma of this entire field. You can find a counterexample. I mean, I don't think that exists in physics or chemistry. And so when you use the example of adiposity versus hyperinsulinemia, there are so many examples of where one precedes the other and reverse. That makes it very difficult, I think, to take Kind of a single pole view of this than that, which I think is why it gets back to this question of these phenotypes. So, if one phenotype is the person who is, I call this the excess carbohydrate or carbohydrate intolerance phenotype. So, that was probably me, just someone who's eating a few too many, eating more carbohydrates than their processing capacity, and they're generally going to respond pretty well to taking those away. But the exceptions to that rule are huge. If that represents 50% of adiposity, I'd be surprised. Mm. What do you think? I think the process of becoming overweight,
1: there's probably a lot of ways to get there. And I don't know that it's bidirectional in terms of super low carb diet, effectively lowers your, it's a kind of, runaround way to get your insulin levels to drop dramatically. And therefore you're able to liberate your own internal fats, endogenous fat stores and regulate appetite. Whether it's the carbs that
0: make you fat in the first place, I think is unclear. We can talk ourselves in circles there because at that point, anything is going to make you fat. It might be that the carbs are doing two things. One, they're the most sensitive driver of insulin. And two, we store them in a pretty unique way. They're the ones that have a very finite capacity for storage unlike fat, where you can sort of store it ad nauseum. So once you tap out the liver and the muscle's glycogen storage, all of a sudden your ability to manage excess glucose now becomes more biochemically complicated, whereas I don't think that's the case with fat.
1: Right, right. But I think if you look at overfeeding studies, so when people are overfed carbohydrate in large amounts, but with low fat content, basically you just get huge increases in metabolic rate. As you know, it's very difficult to actually store glucose as fat. So glucose stimulates insulin to a high degree of fructose, not as much, right? Actually, fructose has very minimal insulin stimulation. So the insulin actually has a couple of super important functions, which is to increase metabolic rate, as well as we think of it as lowering blood sugar, but it's actually, it's just the anabolic hormone. So it actually triggers satiety. So there's a diet based around eating potatoes all day. And so the potato diet is all carbs.
0: And so you would, think it's a high insulin diet but it's actually triggers satiety to a very high degree which by the way not to go down this rabbit hole but yeah. that's such an interesting experiment and i'm familiar with the one you're aware of but i don't remember what other satiety hormones they measured and of course it begs another common question that gets brought into the low carb diet war which by the way i can't believe how many minutes into this and we're still talking about my least favorite subject matter in the world this was actually my plan all along he, he secretly was to like sucked to- <laughs> me into this <laughs> I'd rather be talking about politics right now. But the question is, is it pure physiologic satiety? Is it boredom, food fatigue, like with the potato diet? Because that's some of the arguments on, well, ketogenic diets work. Most people agree, even if you're like the most ardent hater of low carb diets. Most people agree ketogenic diets are very effective for a large number of people. The interesting discussion is the why. And sort of some people argue, well, it's just food boredom. You just get bored of eating because the food sucks and you're tired of giving up your carbs and there's nothing to eat. I also don't find that argument particularly strong And I think the potato diet is a good example of that, where I'd like to go back and look at that study and see how rigorous it was in terms of understanding, was it just boredom of potatoes? Like if I eat another potato, I'm going to die versus, no, I'm really not that hungry because of this regulatory process. It's quite endocrine. I think, well, we could make the argument about steak. So do you
1: ever get bored of steak?
0: I've heard this argument with people doing this carnivore diet, which is Bob Kaplan, who's my head analyst. I mean, he's done multiple rounds of this where all he eats is a steak for dinner and he'll eat as many as he wants. And I don't know, I think he's described it to me like it's actually not that many calories he's eating in the course of a day because he just taps out of how much steak he can eat.
1: Yeah. I mean, again, protein has a, I think probably the highest leverage point on satiety. We can learn a lot from kind of the extreme examples, the extreme examples being here, being like bodybuilders for it. So in order to maximize muscle retention during calorie restriction, you're talking about 200 grams of protein per day, which is like almost a pound and a half to two pounds of lean protein.
0: So the satiation effect there is really high, but that's only 800 calories. Do you ever find that it matters if that protein comes in the form of actually eating a steak where you're getting fat and other things versus protein shakes? Because I know protein is theoretically supposed to be quite satiating, but if I make a shake that has protein in it, I find it to be one of the least satiating things on the planet if it's just a high protein shake. Yeah. And it's a good point that you bring up because
1: it squares the circle. So I kind of had this journey of being this low carb zealot for several years and then realizing that, okay, you can't throw out the data you don't like. So why are the Okinawans who are eating 60% starch not overweight? And I think it comes down to food processing really. So like if I wanted to restructure the food system, it would be, the processed food index, where basically every food, it doesn't matter whether it's a carb or a fat or a protein, it's basically how many steps from this growing out of the ground or being killed.
0: Yeah. You made a very bold statement at the outset, which is that the food system is actively being poisoned. The food supply, I think you said, is actively being poisoned, which I don't think is the same as deliberately being poisoned, but this is what you're talking about. Yeah. So, and
1: again, going back to the percentage of people or my patients that respond to or follow the phenotype of kind of carbosis or, and also to the point of overfeeding with carbohydrate alone. Actually, it's very, very difficult to store fat that way. If you're talking about nutrient partitioning, yeah, you can store hundred grams in your liver, 250 to 350 in your skeletal muscle. What do you do with the rest? Well, what happens is those carbs will stay in the system until they're used up and any fat that is eaten alongside it is stored with incredible alacrity as fat. And almost all processed foods that are high carb are also high fat. So it's not that people are binging on sweet potato. It's sweet potato with butter.
0: Yeah. It's funny you say that. I was like, literally, maybe it's because I'm three days into a four days into a fast. I was fantasizing about what if I could just have all the potatoes I wanted right now, but I couldn't put butter or sour cream on it. So like, I don't want to bake potato if I can't have butter and sour cream. And I love French fries, but oh, they're out because they're fried. So it's really hard to mainline pure carbs without some fat.
1: Yeah. And so it's actually the fat that's being consumed alongside the carbs that is contributing 98% of the weight gain, because de novo lipogenesis is actually fairly limited, but highly triggered by carbohydrates.
0: Yeah, although, I mean, there's a very famous study that Mark Hellerstein did that looks at de novo lipogenesis. That study's got to be 25 years old now. I feel like it's like 95 or something. I don't think he got the doses right on that. I mean, I've talked with Mark about this, and I'm ashamed to say I actually forget where we ended up on this. But my view was that his study also probably underestimated de novo lipogenesis, But that said, I agree with you. I think that if you're in this sort of camp that says carbs are the enemy, you have to be careful with what else you're consuming with it. Now, one area where I think there's something unique metabolically going on is the whole liquid carb world. There is something pretty remarkable about sugar-sweetened beverages. And I'd be very curious if the all-potato diet could work with the all-soda juice diet. Right. You're always thinking about the experiment,
1: run. So again, the key distinction between glucose and sucrose is that sucrose is, is the fructose, right? So fructose has to be metabolized by the liver. So glucose can be used by almost any cell in the body. It even diffuses freely without insulin into many cells, but fructose needs to be metabolized by the liver. If you actually look at the kinetics of eating a piece of whole fruit versus mainlining liquid fructose, your liver can only handle, I think, something on the order of 20 grams at a time. You can have that in half a soda, and in eating a whole piece of fruit, the first pass so the amount that's absorbed in the duodenum is like 15% of the calories. Whereas when you're getting it in its processed form, and I think this probably applies to even like a protein shake, it takes away the mechanical. I think there's a cascade of processes that are being bypassed when you're going with the processed version of a food. Even bread is different now than it was 100 years ago. And that actually dovetails into back into the question of, is the American food supply poisoned? So you could say, our food supply has changed more in the last 100 years than it has in the last 1,000 or 10,000. Oh, much longer, yeah, yeah. And if you look at it as... Kind of the American food system gets exported to other countries you start seeing the same problems quite immediately, so I would spend my summers in England growing up with my mother 's families there, and there were very few very overweight people. When you go back there now, it looks like Cleveland, Ohio, or uh, one of these Midwestern states where the obesity problem is just completely endemic and In terms of what I see in terms of we were going back to the beginning where we 're talking about where do we get our passions from. I was just seeing the same disease over and over and over again in different manifestations. So some would be overweight, some would have full-blown diabetes, some would have fatty liver. This is all the same disease process. So non-communicable diseases didn't get a whole lot of attention in the first parts of medical school. It's kind of like... You had a a name of the disease and then you have a medication that treats it. And actually that paradigm doesn't translate over very well. And that's why I think the American medical system has been really slow on the uptake in terms of combating or having a position on these diseases. Because I just saw somebody today who's got, he had a platinum insurance plan and was seeing an endocrinologist and he had a A1C of 5.9 and fatty liver and his liver enzymes were up and he had visceral adiposity and he's on three anti-diabetic agents. This is from like a very kind of well-known endocrinologist. And I said, you can do that or you can just do a low-carb diet. I can say almost with confidence. I can't remember a case where they had the parameters of metabolic syndrome, plus minus the LFTs, where they didn't respond like a silver bullet, at least metabolically. I mean, they might not have lost every pound of weight that they wanted to lose, but I almost never see non-responders.
0: And in that patient there, because he's got two things going on that are related, but not the same. So if he's got the NAFLD and he's got hyperglycemia, which is what a 5.9A1C is, do you see both of those responding to carbohydrate restriction or do you also need the fructose restriction for the NAFLD? Obviously they can come along for the ride. And usually if you're restricting carbs, you're restricting fructose. But what about the reverse when you just restrict fructose? which we've seen in the pediatric NAFLD population, but without glucose restriction. Right. So I guess it was who
1: ran the study in San Francisco. It was,
0: well, uh, so Rob Lustig Rob, yes. did one, and then Jeffrey Schwimmer and Miriam Voss ran the other, which is actually, that was another study that we funded at NUSI, which was UCSD and Emory. That was a very well done study because it was randomized and performance bias was stripped out of it and stuff like that. I mean, it was pretty clear that the fructose alone had a profound impact. The problem is, quote unquote, the problem, even restricting fructose, the children lost weight. Mm. You couldn't call it isocaloric? It was an attempt at isocaloric. The goal of that study was, could you, without getting the kids to lose a pound of fat, still eradicate the NAFLD? and therefore know exactly which variable was responsible for it. Yeah. I mean,
1: I think all signs are pointing to fructose having a particularly kind of bad role in this. I haven't run those experiments on my patients. So I haven't said, okay, you can have as much starch as you want. Just cut out the sugar. I don't know what you've seen. Our
0: approach to NAFLD is heavy, heavy restriction of fructose and alcohol. Take fructose down to five grams a day, ethanol down to zero and that gets plopped into whatever other nutritional thing they're doing. Of course, fasting is such an important part of NAFLD that if the patient's willing to go there out of the gate, I'd like to kick that off with a five-day fast. But typically, we do not—I mean, I guess it's all relative, right? Relative to a standard American diet, they're still going to restrict carbohydrates. But if we're just addressing NAFLD, we're going to do it basically at 100 to 150 grams a day of glucose in the form of starch. We're going to hammer the fructose, hammer the ethanol. Actually, after talking to Chris Masterjohn, I'm probably a little bit more bullish on choline. And so we'll make sure they're eating enough eggs as well. Generally not an issue. The reason I ask anyway, in your case is you're sort of solving two issues there. You've got the carbohydrate restriction is, in my opinion, the cornerstone of lowering average blood glucose. But by itself, I wonder how effective it is unless there's an explicit reduction in fructose.
1: Well, I mean, I don't know of a low-carb diet that is also not a low-fructose diet.
0: Yeah, I'm curious as to what Chris's thoughts are on that, because I know Chris is very anti. Chris's exact quote on Twitter a few months ago was, there is no dumber way to treat NAFLD than a low-carb diet. I disagree with that. I think that's, clinically, that's just not the case.
1: I would agree. I mean, I actually consider them the same disease in a way. I've actually never seen nafld D. Other than, well, I don't see too many other than being in New York and everyone's considered a heavy drinker here. But then it's not NAFLD, it's AFLD. There you go. (laughs) So I've never seen NAFLD in a patient that did not have metabolic syndrome or early metabolic syndrome. So if we talk about, I mean, we kind of picked the five markers of metabolic syndrome just based on what we were able to observe. That's right.
0: It could have easily been ALT as one of them or actual fat. Or LDLP
1: even as a leading indicator of liver dysfunction.
0: And so I actually to me, they're one and the same disease, honestly. Yeah. So by the way, you brought up something interesting, which was the paradigm of how you were trained, which I guess I wasn't really trained this way because you trained in medicine. I trained in surgery. So I don't actually know how, I mean, outside of talking to my colleagues, like I didn't experience your training. I was memorizing my own lists, but they were, what does a patient with acute pancreatitis look like? And what do you need to do about it? Type thing. We had three books that were considered the most important textbooks in surgery and they were the only if you only had three textbooks and you read them you were fine and you could probably get away with two of these Wait, three Wait, Surgeons Read? <laughs> <laughs> Some of us did. You had Cameron's Principles, you had Greenfield then you had Sabiston, David Sabiston. So these were kind of the three Bibles of surgery. Now, you guys have a Bible in medicine, but you only have one Bible, right? Isn't Harrison's your big Bible? Yeah, so Harrison's Principles of Internal Medicine. And I think that one you get in
1: medical school. So I think you do it— I went to a lousy medical school. We didn't get any free books. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. So, And what's been wonderful, actually, about listening to a podcast is as specialists or even as an internist, after we break from fourth year of medical school, we have very limited interaction with people from other specialties. And it's almost like everybody goes into their residency and learns a new language. So the language of internal medicine or medicine in general, at the time, it was still centered around kind of having an encyclopedic memorized understanding of being able to name disease states and then have a kind of reflexive, multiple choice question answer to what you do. So as opposed to the this is the person in front of me. Let me think through this problem from first principles and maybe look at the underlying cause. And have you heard of this like functional medicine? It's kind of a new sort of...
0: Yeah, I'm familiar with the term. I still don't have a great understanding of what it is. Although I get asked all the time if I practice functional medicine, to which I say, well, I'd like to believe I don't practice dysfunctional medicine, but I don't think I practice functional medicine by some definition.
1: Yeah. So... Functional medicine is like, they kind of claim this root cause analysis approach to medicine, and they've gotten a lot of traction because it speaks to, I think, what patients are experiencing, which is I go to my doctor and I get prescribed four different medications and the guy talked to me for five minutes. And that is, I think, really a stain on our profession as physicians where we abdicated our responsibility to practice good medicine because we kept getting squeezed by the insurance companies into shorter, shorter visits. And I know that your other
0: second least favorite thing to talk about is healthcare policy. (laughs)
1: but um,
0: You know uh, me well. Can we talk about email after? Yeah, (laughs) Just to round out the trifecta of things I love.
1: But you get squeezed into shorter, shorter visits, and then you kind of have everybody. It's easy to know where you're being obviously influenced. So having a pharma rep come into you and buy you lunch and at least you can take a step back and be like, okay, maybe I'm not affected by that. You are, right? You're the easiest person to fool. But the programming goes even deeper than that. And there's an unlearning, like when we learn the language you speak in medicine, we are learning it without kind of learning the rules of grammar. And so have you seen the movie Arrival? Yes. Yes. So the central conceit of that movie is that language or understanding a language changes the way your brain works. In this movie, it's in a very physical way. But the more simple analogy would be when you speak French or Italian, there are certain phrases that change the way you think. And so We have had that influence on us, whether we like it or not, from medical school is about learning a language, residency is about learning a language. So where is that language? Who is doing the writing of the books? Harrison's had $11 million in industry funding when they're talking to us about how we identify and categorize disease states and then how to treat them. So why did we learn that hyperglycemia, diabetes is called hyperglycemia, and the treatment is this medication? Why wasn't it like, this is the physiologic process that's occurring and... And how do we reverse that process in terms of kind of changing the paradigm? But it's not just in I mean, probably one of the most egregious examples is in psychiatry, where we took these medications, which were actually they were psychotropic medications, but they were really identified based on their immediate effects in terms of sedation, withdrawal of certain symptoms. And then the whole neurotransmitter theory of psychiatry, kind of being a neurotransmitter imbalance was invented after that as a kind of easy way for doctors to explain to patients that this is a chemical imbalance, this medication treats the imbalance, and it kind of wraps everything up into this tidy package as opposed to doing the deep work of what is the mismatch here between your DNA's needs and your brain's needs and the environment, where it's you're not having family connections or you have inflammation because you're eating a crappy diet or you're not fulfilled in your work. And those are hard, difficult, long conversations. And we, as physicians... Kind of just said, okay, we are going to be the masters of the pill hypothesis, which is we name a disease and we give it a pharmaceutical compound.
0: I don't really think about this problem much, although I know every time we sit down, I love talking about it because you're thoughtful on it. My guess is there's another thing going on because one could hear this discussion and take a very skeptical view of medicine, but you have to also realize, not you, meaning like one has to also realize that this is not due to like, some grand conspiracy to get everybody taking a pill. Part of this is in my, I guess, estimation of history, there was a really big historical win that worked really, really well for that model, which is basically communicable diseases, which you've sort of alluded to already. In the communicable disease world, to be able to identify the disease, identify the pathogen and provide the right antimicrobial was a game changer. I mean, has saved, I don't know if it's saved a billion lives, but if it hasn't, I bet we're getting close to a billion lives have been saved through identify, treat, right, but repeat. And you could say the same about nutrient deficiencies. Yep. So scurvy, rickets. So I think what happened is the system came into its maturity in an environment when that playbook worked really well. It's sort of like, I can't think of a funny analogy, so I'm not even going to come up with an unfunny one, but it's sort of like it's now trying to play that same game and apply that same strategy of identify, give drug in a time when it doesn't work as well but here's my beef. My beef is when everybody wants to throw their baby out with the bathwater and say, well, there's no role for Western medicine, and we should never be giving drugs. And if somebody's walking around with a cholesterol level of 300 milligrams per deciliter, that's okay because they're eating an okay diet. I mean, to me, that's equally illogical. That's an equally extreme point of view to everybody needs to be on every drug at all times. Yeah. So-
1: I think the takeaway there is that you just need to be Instead of being a nihilist, just a skeptic. So even the digest of, we read papers, we only read papers from studies that got funded. And so the diet of information that we get is heavily edited. And we just need to be aware of that. And so I think that's, if I didn't get that, I'd happen to stumble upon a low carb diet by accident. Why is that? This was just completely, there's nothing nefarious. I don't think there was a kind of conspiracy, but I think it's just the natural kind of predilection is towards things that get funded or have funding, just get more attention. And and we just need to be aware of that as physicians and at least examine, oh, why do I think that? Why did, so for the cholesterol thing, I think it's a really interesting question. So I love that you uh, had a little spar with, was it Dave Feldman or? Yeah, yeah. And I love, Dave Feldman's not an MD, but- Why is there not an MD who kind of came at it from his direction? Because we kind of inculcated in that in a different paradigm, and it didn't allow us to see the situation from the outside. Not to say that he's correct or what have you, but again... Same with the low carb and the high carb, even with cholesterol, it's like you have the residual risk problem, even when you have the low LDL and you have people with high cholesterol who never have a heart attack. So how do we reconcile that? I think I was listening on one of your other podcasts. You were talking about how there's very little medical theory papers, Because I guess everything is kind of biased towards experimental work, which, I mean, I'm glad it is because we don't need a bunch of pontificators. But I had one of those shower moments the other day where we're thinking, how do we reconcile that difference in the same population where you have a high LDL in one scenario and a low
0: LDL in another? This is something I think a lot about. I mean, that's what happens when you have a multifaceted disease process where a given risk factor is necessary but not sufficient. So let me give you another example of that where I don't think you struggle that much. Why do some smokers get lung cancer? Some smokers don't get lung cancer. Non-smokers get lung cancer. Non-smokers don't get lung cancer. So there's a two by two of smoke, don't smoke. Lung cancer, don't get lung cancer. Every one of those squares is populated, but not equally. So that means that smoking is neither necessary nor sufficient for lung cancer. We know that, and nobody would argue that smoking increases the risk of lung cancer. For some reason, when it comes to lipids, people don't seem to see that not only is there an overlap there, it's even more profound. LDL is not just associated with it. LDL is a necessary thing. You have to have a lipoprotein take cholesterol into the artery wall It's just that that's not sufficient. So on the one hand, you ask a great question, and I'm glad you use the term residual risk because that's a great rigorous way to describe it. I'll explain to the listener what you meant by that. But residual risk means why is it that some people, when they have low LDL, you've already pharmacologically lowered their LDL, they still can go on to develop atherosclerosis. And there's two arguments here. One argument is because we never fully eradicate LDL. So there's always some amount of lipoprotein that's sitting around. The other is the other risk factors still matter. Arguably one of the most important risk factors in residual risk is LP little a. Most doctors don't even know what it is, let alone measure it. So you have lots, you know, and if eight to 12% of the population, which I think is a conservative estimate, by the way, Sam Tamikas might say it's closer to 20% of the population has elevated LP little a. And we're only looking at LDL cholesterol, which is the thing that most people are looking at. And you say, well, this person's LDL cholesterol is 70 milligrams per deciliter. They're at the 10th, fifth percentile there should be no risk. But if they have an elevated LP little a and you're not measuring it, there's residual risk. And that could be one in five to one in 10 patients. But where I also would push, and I think you would agree, and I think Dave Feldman would agree is, what about hyperinsulinemia? What about elevated uric acid levels? I mean, there's so many other metabolic factors that are driving it. And remember, you don't need 200 milligrams per deciliter of LDL cholesterol. That just makes it much more likely that those sterols are going to be bombarding the artery wall and that getting retained within the endothelium and all those other things. So to me, that's sort of why the problem statement that you gave can easily coexist. Let's ask the other questions. I didn't answer the other one. Why is it that somebody can walk around with an LDL? Cho- I have a woman who's 55. LDL cholesterol is easily 180 milligrams per deciliter. Concordant with her LDL particle number, she's probably about 2,000 nanomole per liter. Her HDL cholesterol is pretty high. Her triglycerides are pretty low. She almost looks like she has familial hypercholesterolemia, but she doesn't. She's in her mid-50s, and her risks are high enough I sort of had this discussion with her, which is, look, we've pulled as hard as we possibly can on the nutritional levers and all the other levers. There's a pharmacologic consideration here, which is, do we want to put you on a statin? She's a fine candidate for a statin. She has a high degree of cholesterol synthesis. She also absorbs quite a bit of cholesterol, so she would do great on a zetamibe. And she was a little bit hesitant. So I said, look, let's get a calcium score and a CTA on you. And sure enough, both came back perfectly clean. So her CAC is zero. Her CTA doesn't show one speck of soft plaque. Neither of those are a guarantee of anything, but they make me feel a heck of a lot better. And so the discussion with her is, well, okay, I feel more comfortable if your decision is you don't want to be treated. But I said, be sure that the clean CTA and CAC are really giving us a 5 to 10-year window. So we should at least reserve the right to revisit this.
1: Well, that's also an interesting thing. So the LDL as monotonic area under the curve over the course of a lifetime— I have more questions than answers on this. So like, for example, and we're maybe turn the tables and interview you for a minute. I feel like um, we've, ar- we've like, already I've done that. I've never done more. Yeah. yeah. But does the LDL particle get oxidized in the plasma or in the endothelium or extracellular matrix of the intima?
0: I think it's getting retained inside the subendothelial space. It's getting locked up there by proteoglycans. I think that's where the mainstay of oxidation is happening. Maybe phrased another way, I think that's where the oxidation is most harmful mm-hmm. because remember and I was actually talking about this with a patient today, atherosclerosis is primarily an inflammatory disease. The destruction is inflammation. The lipid is just the trigger. If something else, if UV light triggered an inflammatory response inside of artery walls, none of us would be outside. So the issue is, as that sterol is getting oxidized in a place that we do not want inflammatory cells, then I think we would be a long step of the way, which really comes back to your point about this patient. It's quite likely that this patient of mine with her LDL of 180 milligrams per deciliter is going to sail through life and not get atherosclerosis, at least for the next 40 years. Will that tell me that LDL doesn't play a causal role no, it will just tell me that there are other variables. Maybe her particles just don't get retained very well or maybe when they do, they just don't get oxidized.
1: which I think are these are actually critical and important things to reflect on. So lipidology should be a branch of hepatology in a way because the liver is synthesizing most of those particles and also responding clearing them for recycling and clearing them. That's an interesting idea. I like that idea. Yeah, because it's really, and I think of it because it's like, how do we unify this? So was there a phenotype pre-1950 not related to smoking that had advanced heart? So we have a few different pathways to kind of early CAD. So it's going to be smoking number one. So if you're doing a family history and their father was a smoker, you can kind of almost discounted.
0: Hypertension?
1: Yeah. Smoking, hypertension, the familial hypercholesteremia, and then the new phenotype would be metabolic disease. I would call it hyperinsulinemia and liver dysfunction. So I was thinking about the familial hypercholesteremia the other day, and I had an interesting thought, which is that the commonality is not that the LDL particle count in the blood is higher. It's that the residence time of those LDL particles is higher, independent of the number of particles. And the reason for that is most familial hypercholesterolemia is due to one of two defects. One is the receptor is broken, and B, there's some part of the ApoB that doesn't match the receptor ligand. There's a receptor ligand mismatch,
0: Yeah, I mean, to be clear, there are probably 2,000 different mutations that produce that. But yeah, it's an LDL clearance problem, which it's interesting how you describe it. I guess I think of it slightly differently, which is not incompatible with what you've said. Familial hypercholesterolemia, FH, means you don't clear LDL well. It's a very heterogeneous disease that, again, my last counting was over 2,000 different genetic pathways could get you there. And the phenotype is high LDL cholesterol, high total cholesterol, often high HDL cholesterol as well. And I sort of think of it as either that you don't have enough receptors or your receptors don't match your particles, which I think you've described in a slightly more granular way.
1: Yeah. And so That to me, so an LDL of 180 in somebody with some mild FH variant, and an LDL of 180 in somebody who's metabolically healthy with no family history of heart disease, can we look at those as two distinct entities? And do we apply the same population studies to both of those people,
0: right? I think that's a great question. I think that's what Dave Feldman and folks like that want to understand. And I'm not that close to this discussion. So I don't know if they've ever been able to get a hold of data from Mesa or Framingham that would enable that. It would be hard, though, to know that. So it yeah. might be something that you have to study prospectively, which will be very challenging.
1: I think actually Dave Feldman did a, a little analysis on the NHANES data, looking at the centarians And so he put them into uh, tertials or quartiles for, and found that the people with the highest LDL lived the longest. I mean, I'd have to look at more closely at the data on that. But I think if you look at Adding the metabolic syndrome into that, if you look at people with hypertriglyceridemia, the LDL particle residence time is five days as opposed to two. And so that I think alone, like the arteries are an oxidative environment. And so if you can make some calculation of, so they did this with like, they labeled leucine or valine or one of the amino acids when for cholesterol production. And so if the residence time goes up, your oxidative potential goes up. So is it a pre-oxidated? And then secondly, is what in the, I'm always trying to relate things back to with my kind of bias assumption that the American food supply is poisoned. It's like, did this exist? a hundred years ago? And if not, why would it not have, or why would it have? So I think Tom Dayspring, you had talked about, he's really bearish on the phytosterols.
0: He's bearish on the use of phytosterols to lower cholesterol, which they do lower cholesterol. Because there's a number of
1: things that lower cholesterol, right?
0: Right. So phytosterols do because they outcompete cholesterol at this neiman Pixie one one-like-one transporter. The problem is phytosterols in the context of people who have defective ATP binding cassette transporters are more oxidative. They're more, so in other words, you can lower a person's cholesterol and increase their risk of atherosclerosis.
1: Yes. And I think that happens the same in the saturated fat, polyunsaturated fat debate. So if you look at, would you agree that the kind of dietary paradigm around saturated fat was largely kind of just a misdirection in nutrition science or?
0: Meaning do I think that the phobia of saturated fat was misguided? Yeah. Yes. But again, I take a view, which is I saw a patient today it's funny, we were looking at his labs and I was like, oh my God, you've been my patient for exactly one year. You know, we were like a day away from his one year anniversary. And so we're looking at his labs dated a year ago tomorrow. And you want to know what his LDL cholesterol was on the day that he came to me? It was like almost 400 milligrams per deciliter, his LDL cholesterol. And he was mainlining, he was on a very low carbohydrate diet, mainlining saturated fat. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I've seen the same. So is that healthy? I'm going to have a
1: hard time saying yes to that. I think there's a couple of considerations there. So one is I see it a lot when people do a low-carb diet without also having a high-fiber diet. So... Fiber basically feeds your gut microbiota. The micro They make short-chain fatty acids. They also metabolize cholesterol and alter it so that it gets excreted in the stool rather than reabsorbed. I think that I have a very weak understanding, but that's my understanding there.
0: I actually don't know enough about this.
1: But saturated fat is kind of inert. Most animals store their fat as saturated fat. They don't store it as polyunsaturated fat because polyunsaturated fat is highly chemically reactive. We use it for cellular signaling And we kind of only consumed it in micronutrient quantities. I think it was until about 1910 when we had the industrial seed oil revolution, polyunsaturated fat intake was less than half a percent of calories. That can't be
0: right. Yes. How is that possible? But there's polyunsaturated fat within meat. Trace amounts. No, no, no. If you look at, like, if you take a piece of steak, it might be directionally, it might be a third saturated, a third monounsaturated, a third polyunsaturated, isn't it We'll have to do a
1: little bit of research afterwards, but I think the total intake, I'm quite certain it was less than 1% of total
0: calories. So Maybe the total intake of oils that are predominantly polyunsaturated was that low, but I don't think the total intake of polyunsaturated fat could have ever been that low. I think
1: it is, and then it's gone up to 8 to 10%, so a 20-fold
0: increase. I think there's some key differences between— Wait, we must eat more than 10% of our fat today as polyunsaturated, though. 10% of daily calories— Uh, Oh, okay. I thought 10% of fat calories. Okay.
1: It makes sense. I mean, 60% of American calories come from three crops like corn, wheat, and soy. But I actually am, I think in terms of talking about medical theories, I think the polyunsaturated fat thing is going to be the next kind of identified demon that we find. We, we already knocked out trans fat, but polyunsaturated fats in macronutrient quantities, I think, have the potential to be very toxic because they're easily oxidized. The industrial process that we use to kind of refine them strips out the natural antioxidants. You don't have the vitamin E, you don't have kind of any of these natural stabilizing compounds and they create peroxyl radicals very easily. So if we're talking about per particle atherogenicity, I think based on the form of the triglycerides that are traveling along with the cholesterol probably has a huge impact on whether that cholesterol gets oxidized or not. So if we're thinking to like when I have to give recommendations to a patient, we have to kind of think about the precautionary principle, which is, okay, what is the default state? What is the additional risk? Do I have to pay attention to that risk? How can we quantify that risk? I think it's difficult to quantify, but I don't know. I'm pretty uh, bearish on the polyunsaturated as well as the increase in the phytosterols as well. It's the same principle. You've got these carbon double bonds that are just sites for reaction, which makes them easy to use in cell signaling for kind of arachidonic acid and kind of signaling cascades. But I don't know. I think that may end up having a pretty big impact on, on the heart disease risk. I don't know how we would design an experiment to do it. Although I think the natural experiment that was conducted, I think it was the Minnesota coronary study where they had, and this, again, one of those studies that you wouldn't be able to do nowadays because it was done in a mental ward among, it was a fairly large, I think. The it was Minnesota,
0: you mean the one that was finished in 1971 or something that didn't get published until 89? And then there was a reanalysis of the data more
1: recently than that. So what they did was put the two groups of men on the same diet and they
0: just switched oh, Yeah, out One pain. was very high saturated, one was very high polyunsaturated. Right.
1: And so what they found was- There was and,
0: no difference, I thought, in cardiovascular their disease?
1: No, there was, uh, I think, a doubling in mortality. and But you did see a reliable lowering of LDL, switching out the polyunsaturated for the saturated. But you saw a marked increase in all-cause mortality.
0: So I don't know that we'll get a But there was no difference in cardiovascular mortality, was there? I might be thinking of the wrong study, but this is an interesting study if it's the one that I'm thinking of. And this is one of those episodes where the show notes will become staggeringly valuable because Travis and Bob will actually figure all of this out in our blind stupidity here. But... If I'm thinking of it correctly, the Minnesota Heart Study, as you said, took patients in a mental ward and randomized them to isocaloric, isofat, isomacronutrient diets. One was very high sat fat. One was, and it wasn't even that high, by the way. It was something like 35 grams per day or something like that. And then a PUFA arm. Mm -hmm. And my recollection is after five to seven years of this, there was no difference in cardiovascular outcomes despite a difference in LDL. And then the study didn't get published until 16 years later, circa 1989 at which point the author, this sends you to scientific jail in my book. The answer as to why they didn't publish it when the study came out, he said, we didn't like how the answer came out. So what you're suggesting is that there was a follow-up analysis of those patients that suggested a higher overall mortality yeah, in the uh, PUFA group.
1: We'll have to double check. Okay. Okay, cool. I find that somewhat, at least compelling enough to have kind of a general rule of avoiding well, seed oils. It sort of
0: comes back into your, I guess, your initial thesis, right? Which is like, where do seed oils show up in high quantities? They don't really show up in the foods most of us know we should be eating.
1: Yes and no. I think a lot of, not to get demonized a specific company, but like Sweet Green, the salad company, they use even their kind of vinaigrette, which is traditionally made with olive oil. All of their salad dressings are made with grapeseed oil. And it's the default neutral cooking oil in almost all restaurants. So even if you're getting sauteed spinach at a restaurant, you could be getting a heaping dose of those oils.
0: You know what's interesting? I looked at this kind of recently. I was surprised that safflower was mostly monounsaturated fat. Do you know that side by side, the macro look of safflower and olive oil are almost the same?
1: I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I was totally shocked to see this. So there's one other one of these plant seed oils that is very similar to olive oil. I was so surprised I actually emailed Bob and I was like, "Dude, is there any sort of even epidemiology that would suggest that high consumption of safflower produces an olive oil like phenotype?" But my guess is that nobody's consuming it by itself and they're blended, so you you might dilute the effect. But it's interesting. And we'll include the table in the show notes. If you look at saturated fat, monounsaturated, polyunsaturated fat, Of olive oil, which I think most people would agree is the gold standard fat, it looks almost identical to safflower.
1: Yeah, and I think they're even re engineering some of the seed oils to have fatty acid profiles more similar to olive oil. Mm So do you know what canola stands for? Mm
0: -mm. Oh, I used to. It's
1: it's a Canada oil, low acid. I mean, you've got this like 17 step process to turn it from rapeseed byproduct, including hexane solvents and deodorizing. And I mean, there's just every opportunity to create an oxidation is there. And in fact, when they switched over from using like tallow to canola oil for cooking oils and fryers, they basically would have like episodes of spontaneous because they're so chemically reactive, you'd get. Spontaneous combustion, you would get plastic actually forming on fryers because oil, when you heat it enough, turns into plastic.
0: So, if you're going to give a patient kind of like marching orders, so some patients respond well to, all right, we're going to, your, your, carbohydrate intake is going to be 160 grams per day. Fructose will be up to 20 grams per day. Protein will be 120 grams per day. Fat will be this, this much MUFA, this much PUFA, this much SFA. There's some people like me who respond very favorably to that type of input. Most people don't. Most people are like, just tell me the principles through which to navigate my existence, and yeah. can be sort of like, okay, if it comes in a package, we're gonna not eat it unless it's like nuts or something, right. you know. So how would you sort of take all of your principles and then throw them into that type of a prescription?
1: Right. So when I was doing it in the clinic in in residency, it was it all fit on one page, right? So you're creating You're trying to influence behavior change. I think a lot of times bright line sort of dictates become useful. So it's just meat, chicken, fish, eggs, nuts, non-starchy vegetables, titrate the amount of starch and simple carbohydrates you have to your activity level. And that's pretty much it. That's one sentence. But you can go as detailed as somebody needs. And I think you need an iterative process. So you kind of have an, a little bit of an education process around what does this look like? You need to be able to say, okay, what's this person's interpretation of that? And then be able to see that to kind of alter it in the right direction. But in terms of macronutrients, I mean, it can vary wildly. And in fact, after, I think it's also really important not to just have a set it and forget it sort of approach to the diet, because you do get these metabolic adaptations, decreases in thyroid, testosterone, your cortisol starts to go up. And so you need to have periods of, and you need to reset your leptin sensitivity. You need insulin is actually good in certain, you need a balance of insulin. It's not that you need low insulin, although you could say, Lowering insulin area under the curve over a lifetime probably imparts some longevity benefit. But it's like, what's the balance? For some people, it's, I almost always do a kind of two to four week low carb induction phase. And then from there, it can be, Okay, we've now started strength training. So we now have better glycogen glucose disposal ability. We can start adding kind of intermittently putting carbohydrates back in. Let's say instead of doing it three times a day now, you're doing it three or four times a week that you're adding carbohydrates in. And I think that also might have some ability to combat the skeletal muscle insulin resistance that occurs with long term low carb. That's purely speculative. I think for some people, once you get closer to the goal weight and you really want to make a dedicated increase in muscle mass, kind of of new goal. Putting them on a higher carbohydrate diet that's lower in fat
0: while they do heavy training really can be beneficial. You alluded to this earlier, and I'm kind of surprised that we don't spend more attention. When I say we, uh, frankly, I guess I just mean me, but I definitely think enough people in the nutrition world do not give enough attention to bodybuilders. And maybe it's because they're so easy to dismiss because of all the drugs But if you put that aside for a moment, I've never met a bodybuilder who wasn't more in tune with their nutrition than any nutritionist I've ever met any day of the week. So
1: have you heard of reverse dieting? No. Okay, so this is a little bit newer in the bodybuilding community, but by the way, anybody listening, I am not the bodybuilding phenotype. Um, But in that community, there is this concept of because you know that the metabolic slowdown on an obese person who goes somewhere near normal weight is going to be anywhere from fifteen to forty percent lower than predicted calorie expenditure per
0: day. Wait, let's explain what that means. So when you were three hundred pounds, let's just assume your resting metabolic rate was I don't know 2,000 calories per day and if you had a goal weight of 150 let's say that has a predicted metabolic rate of 1300 you're saying that it will be realized 30 to 40 percent less than that in other words it will be an overcompensation of metabolic slowdown
1: right so basically if you go from let's say the a 200 pound person who's always been 200 pounds let's say they burn 2,000 calories a day versus a person who's 300 pounds that goes down to 200 pounds, that person is burning, let's say 1500 calories a day.
0: Does that depend how long they were at 300 pounds? Unclear, but actually Rudy Liebel did some of the work on this where the effect persists at least six years. Yeah. So this was the reverse T3 stuff that they saw, which by the way, you could overcome with T3 administration. I don't know if you saw, but I, whenever I fast, I check my, all my hormones on the, usually the fifth or sixth day of the fast. My reverse T3 typically goes from a normal, which for me is like 8 to 12 is a normal reverse T3, it typically goes up to 35 to 40. And my free T3, which is typically like 3 to 3.5 will go down to 1.5 to 1.2. So my ratio of free T3 to reverse T3 goes down by 5 to 6X. And that's pretty acute. Very acute. What happens to your uh, LDLP during a fast? You know, I've seen both. I've seen it go down and I've seen it go up. It would be predicted, I think, by Dave Feldman to go up. Right. I've only seen that once. Actually, yeah, I think every other time I've seen it go down or stay about flat.
1: But I think longer term with caloric restriction. With caloric restriction, you can get increases in, in LDLP as well. You attribute that
0: to the level of insulin in the LDL receptor?
1: It could be. The other thing could be I think one of the first treatments for familial hypercholesterolemia was thyroid hormone.
0: Yes. So thyroid hormone upregulates LDL receptor. Very reliably. I don't know about it in the hyper state. Certainly a good lipidologist or hopefully a good doctor knows you don't treat hypercholesterolemia until you fix hypothyroidism. And then whether it's subclinical or not. If the TSH is above two, you probably shouldn't be mucking around with their lipids. Right, right.
1: So you get all of these, the thyroid being downregulated is one mechanism. It's also a reduction in NEAT, right? So non-exercise activity thermogenesis, which is kind of twitching, walking, taking the stairs, that sort of thing. And that goes down and you can get a 40% decrease. So what this happens very, so it's one thing to go from being obese to not obese, like the biggest loser contestants. It's another thing to be muscular, relatively lean, and then to go to 4% body fat. So the same thing occurs. These guys are getting they feel cold, they're sluggish, they're irritable. The same way in the
0: the study of- The Minnesota starvation.
1: Yeah, the experiment. And so the problem is, is that you now have a new baseline metabolic rate. You're cutting calories. And so your caloric intake is lower, but your initial metabolic rate was 2,500 calories. Now you're down to 1,500 and your new metabolic rate is 1,800. So you're still- losing weight by only three fractions. That has to happen. In prolonged calorie restriction, you need to plateau. You don't linearly lose weight until you wither away to nothing. And so you just have a new differential that's only 300 calories. So now when you go back to eating 2,500 calories, which was your previous normal caloric intake, you're in a caloric excess of 700 calories a day. So the reverse diet is essentially a phase that you build in after kind of like a bodybuilding show or what have you, where you slowly increase calories to kind of retrain the metabolism back to your normal rate. And what they found is that they can push it into the three, 4,000 calorie a day range with minimal fat regain. And in fact, when some of the- What macros
0: are they using to do that?
1: So they're using macros on the order of, let's say, so during a phase of fat loss, you would keep protein a little bit higher, right? Because you want- to minimize muscle catabolism, but probably in the building phase, it's going to be anywhere from 180 to 200 grams of protein for a 200 pound man or 880 pound man. They do relatively low fat. So 50 to 80 grams of fat, and they go two, three, 400 grams of carbohydrates in some cases. So that's interesting.
0: So at the end of this, when I'm done fasting in a few days, It'll only have been a week that I've fasted, but I'll have lost 10 pounds. In fact, I started this one heavy. I started at 182. I was 176 this morning. I will undoubtedly be 172 by whatever, Saturday. So let's just say 10 pounds. So you're saying if I refed relatively low fat, high protein, high carb, I'd regain the weight, but most of it would be the lean tissue.
1: That would be the theory. Plus you want to be increasing your activity level. So you want to be lifting, obvious. Yeah. Yeah. It's like telling the Pope to read the Bible. (laughs) I'm going to be lifting. Don't Don't worry. So, and then you kind of take advantage of the difficulty of
0: storing glucose as fat. I got to tell you, I really have to go back and look at sort of the that Hellerstein paper and see. But again, I don't think it's the default pathway. But so, what do we think is happening in the potato people? Let's say you give somebody two thousand calories a day of potatoes and you don't let them exercise. So this is a different experiment. No, let's make it more four thousand calories a day of potatoes in someone whose total energy expenditure is 3,000 calories per day.
1: I see a challenge coming on.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Any of these subscribers want to volunteer for this one? (laughs) We're going to get a little IRB and we'll find somebody to donate the potatoes. (laughs) You normalize out and cancel out the glycogen use. There's still a glut of energy, let's just say to the tune of 1,000 kilocalories per day, it happens to all be in glucose. Are you saying thermogenesis just will go up to a- Skyrockets. Yeah. I see. Interesting. From studies I've read, I mean, they
1: actually tried to do this where you're doing 4,000 So why can't you
0: add protein to those people? Why does it have to be potatoes? Why can't it be potatoes with eggs? Oh, the fat of the eggs.
1: Yeah, you can't do eggs, but I suppose you could do protein. I think there's just a, if you are doing frequent workouts- Like if you did potatoes and chicken breasts-
0: Right. Or potatoes and tuna or something-
1: I think in a caloric excess, you actually don't need a lot of protein. Because the carbohydrate is so catabolic? No, carbohydrate is... I'm sorry, anabolic. Protein sparing, essentially. You go up to 4,000 calories, your ability to have de novo lipogenesis, I think, is very limited, and thermogenesis just goes through the roof. Whether that applies to... Unfortunately, I kind of have all these cockamamie ideas and try to apply them to myself, and they don't always work out. So for me, it's unanswered questions is, okay, in a seven-day fast versus a four-day fast versus a 10-day fast, or in caloric restriction, when does uh, protein turnover slow down? Super important to know that, because if it's a matter of during a seven-day fast that there is an extinction effect where you start to preserve muscle mass due to growth hormone, when does that kick in? Or am I just eating my skeletal muscle for glucose?
0: Do you agree with my observation that during periods of fasting, the most important thing you can do to maintain muscle mass is lift weights?
1: Yes. We have a name for this hormone called growth hormone. It happened to be observed. It's what makes us grow during puberty, for example. But as an adult, it really is kind of almost a misnomer, right? I mean, it's really, its function in my mind is to preserve lean mass in a fasted state. And that's why we get it kind of on a daily basis, our biggest kind of, and I guess they do four-year transformations in terms
0: of because it's very pulsatile in release. I mean measuring growth hormone is so complicated, but IGF's a pretty good proxy. As the readout state, because it doesn't fluctuate as much.
1: But I think it's important to realize that it is pulsatile. Yeah, it's very pulsatile. It's it's very pulsatile. And you get spikes basically after a solid night's sleep, and then after 20 plus hours of fasting, and then it increases for the first few days during a fast. And in fact, that corresponds also with your increases in norepinephrine and epinephrine. So if you measure metabolic rate for the first three to
0: four days after starting a fast, metabolic rate goes up. After that, it starts to go down. If I'm just going to assert something that may be incorrect, that if you really want to fast for the true sort of complete glycogen depletion, hopefully kickstarting autophagy three days seems to be about the minimum. Again, I'm just saying that based on what I see with glucose levels and other sort of physiologic levels like ketones and things like that, that even 24 to 48 hours of fasting might not be enough. Mm-hmm. But by 72 hours, you're really in the magic zone. So three days becomes your floor. You're talking about the factors that might define the ceiling. Don't go beyond this amount because there could be some deleterious consequences. What would be your theoretical yeah. argument?
1: I think the floor is kind of, it's interesting as well, because for me, it's really Do you find that protein catabolism is functionally affected when you do a longer-term fast?
0: I mean, again, I'm not doing granular enough measurements to know, right? So it's very crude. What am I doing? I'll take a picture of myself every day in the mirror to sort of very grossly assess muscle mass, measuring blood urea, nitrogen, and all the nonsense we can measure. But I can't really measure protein catabolism. Right. Would you want to? Sure. Yeah. I would love to do a seven day fast in an environment where I could have a muscle biopsy and a fat biopsy every single day, complete metabolomics, complete proteomics. I mean, complete sequencing of everything imaginable. I mean, I would kill to do that. And amazingly, I would do it in a heartbeat. It's not trivial to get an institutional review board to approve that. Just getting an IRB to do that is not the easiest thing in the world. But, uh, I don't know, and maybe when I'm done with the book and I have a little bit more free time, maybe I'll go back to visiting that. but but that's been a high priority of mine for probably three years, which is because mm-hmm. also I want to sort of look at signatures of autophagy and other things like that. I think that fasting is just such a powerful tool that it kind of, I think of it as one of the most powerful drugs we have in the entire toolbox of medicine. And yet I'm frustrated that I don't know the dose of the drug to give. This is one of those drugs where there's a sort of hormesis and maybe different doses work in different settings. It's like, imagine you're some doctor walking around in your white coat with your little black bag and your stethoscope and someone hands you a bottle of pills and says, this is the single most valuable drug you have. And you're like, oh God, thank you. How much do I give? Don't know. What's the dose? I don't know. Which patients do I give it to? Well, anyone can take it. Yeah, but that's how impotent I feel with this tool. And as interesting as it is to talk about this drug and that drug and all of these really amazing, cool things, like right in the middle of our face is this awesome thing that we don't really understand enough about.
1: Yeah. And I think that really prevents doctors because we are so, we want to be quantitative. I think for example, do you deal with a lot of autoimmunity? No, super so, a little bit. yeah. So I think there's a huge amount of anecdotal literature out there, and I think there's some randomized trials now that are experimenting with it. But both with kind of an anti-inflammatory diet that you're just doing a strict elimination diet or fasting, I think most autoimmune conditions, at least the ones that are relapsing remitting, so you're not having like irreversible. Right, not, not, just, not lupus every
0: day of your right, life.
1: Right, right. I have really good responses to fasting. I put most of my patients on some form of fast and then time-restricted feeding versus fasting. When do you consider a
0: fast starting going to bed hungry or... No, I don't use the term intermittent fasting for anything that's in the time-restricted domain. So I consider... A fast doesn't really begin until 36 hours, 48 hours in that range. So yeah, one meal a day is still in my mind, just time-restricted feeding, but not intermittent fasting. Right, agreed. And I agree with you. Just empirically, I've seen, I always feel like the inflammation dissipate from my body when I'm fasting.
1: And do you measure cortisol levels during your fast?
0: I have. I don't really get much value out of spot cortisol levels in the blood. It's not that helpful. But I've done urinary cortisol collections during the fasts. And actually, I only did it once. I did not see a big increase. I didn't see much of a change, which surprised me because, and this is way TMI. I think I even mentioned this once on social media, but if there's really one thing about fasting that sucks, it's my body odor becomes unbearable. And it's not the acetone in my breath and the ketones. Like it is literally perspiration. It just, it's not like I'm perspiring much, but it stinks. And I can't figure it out because I'm like kind of a lucky person. Like I don't really have body odor. I don't even wear deodorant most of the time but when I'm fasting, I have to wear deodorant. And I even notice by the end of the day, like, goodness, what's going on? And I've never understood, is that a cortisol thing? Like, what other sort of endocrine issues are changing during a fast that lead to that? Yeah. By the way, listeners, you're welcome for uh, <laughs> me doing the,
1: the table switch, uh, Dr. Peter Atia. Oh, did we ever get an answer on the uh, cortisol question as to whether it's context-dependent catabolic versus anabolic?
0: It's both. Yeah. Yeah. That makes it a very interesting hormone because it it has the potential to both liberate free fatty acids from adipose tissue and force their storage, presumably acting on different things. So it's, i looked this up after we talked about it a long time ago, and then I've already forgotten it. I believe its liberation is based on its action on hormone-sensitive lipase, whereas its promotion or catabolic nature is sort of a different pathway. But I still don't know exactly what the energy sensing... like. It still has to be context-specific. It still has to know, oh, that's a tiger that jumped out. Now we go after hormone-sensitive lipase, and you should be breaking down fatty acids like crazy versus, oh you're getting a divorce. Oh, well, in this situation I want the cortisol to make you fatter. And maybe it's
1: as simple as being in a fed versus unfed state.
0: I don't I don't know. My guess is it could be duration, it could be due to the spike, you know, maybe yeah. the spike of cortisol is sufficient to ameliorate to kick off the liberation, but the chronic long tail of it goes from being Sort of catabolic to more anabolic to the fat cell. I got the sense this is known, but just didn't have enough time to dig into it.
1: Just for context, we had been, cortisol, again, one of those hormones that we name and we name it after our kind of the colloquial understanding, which is that it's a stress hormone, when in actuality it's kind of on a diurnal basis, it's a waking up hormone, right? It's kind of supposed to be just purely catabolic to glycogen and fat and to a lesser degree amino acids to kind of just naturally wake you up and start your day. And then we've commandeered it for this property of giving us energy under stressful conditions. And you get this classical redistribution of muscle mass from the periphery. I think clinically what's kind of, it's less that it makes you gain weight and more that it's just redistributive. So it's catabolic to muscle and then anabolic to fat when you're in a kind of a static state.
0: And this goes back to a very early thing we discussed at the outset, which we never came back to. And I think the listeners are going to, this will be one of those podcasts where people are going to be like, you guys talked about so many things that you then got distracted on. And I I apologize. (laughs) I think that's the nature of some of these things. I'm sorry. The show notes, I promise we'll organize this in a way that makes it better. But we didn't come back to the different phenotypes of obesity, which is sort of where we started. So we talked about how one phenotype might be the hypercarbic phenotype. This is just the person who is consuming carbohydrates at a level that goes beyond their capacity to distribute them and, and oxidize them. And those people tend to have... Hyperinsulinemia that is very responsive to carbohydrate restriction. So, uh, my view is this phenotype can only be diagnosed after the fact. I can't look at somebody and predict, oh, you're going to do really well on a carb restricted diet. Yeah. And
1: even the Mendelian randomization where they predict insulin secretion based on baseline insulin
0: secretion. No, nope. very- it turned out not to be the case. So, I think a second phenotype, I think we both agree on the first phenotype. I don't know if we agree on any of the other stuff, but I mean, the other phenotypes, we haven't talked about it, but the second phenotype in my experience is the hypercortisolemic poor sleeper. So this is a person that can have totally normal insulin levels. I've got three examples of patients like this over the past year. Hemoglobin A1C of 5% oral glucose tolerance test that makes me jealous. You couldn't come up with a single, not one sign of metabolic syndrome in these people, but they sleep like crap. Their nighttime cortisol levels are through the roof. Each of these three cases, by the way, were women. So given that that's such a small N, I can't draw a conclusion from that. And there might be that there are, at least in these three cases, we're talking about very normal androgen profiles. So these were not PCOS type descriptions. You just couldn't get these patients to lose weight until you could get them to actually sleep seven and a half to eight and a half hours a night properly and manage their hypercortisolemia with other modifications that primarily existed around behavioral modification. Were they very overweight or just kind of... All of them, I would say, going back to a comment you made about most people who are overweight are inside quite uncomfortable with that Each of them was staggeringly uncomfortable with their weight. I would say two out of the three could pull it off pretty well because they were pretty muscular, athletic. Mm -hmm. They just looked like sort of big muscular women. But no, look, I'd say each of them was probably, if you stuck them in a DEXA, I'd be surprised if any of them were less than 35% body fat.
1: But I see this actually, probably the much more common would be where you're not significantly overweight, but you're very under muscled. And you could actually
0: be... And that was none of these three, but again, super small sample, don't know what to make of it. But
1: I think it needs to be number two on the list. If somebody is a non-responder to your initial kind of dietary strategies, like cortisol and sleep, especially for New Yorkers, is like far and away there. And I actually almost don't put anything into fasting glucose levels anymore
0: because... Oh yeah, it's so impacted by cortisol. It's,
1: so impacted by cortisol. But then the question is, does the cortisol driving up blood sugar then drive the insulin response? to be above baseline and that's what's driving the weight gain.
0: I don't know. I mean, I'm one of those people who, I mean, I know this because I wear the CGM and I'm approaching four years of wearing the thing and having lots of data. I tend to have higher morning glucose levels than most people. If you divide my day into midnight to noon versus noon to midnight, this is what's interesting. I do virtually all of my eating between noon and midnight, meaning it's afternoon. I'm almost never eating between midnight and noon. But if you truncate me that way and look at average glucose in each sector, it's always higher in the non-feeding sector. Interesting. Your average glucose. My average glucose is higher. And even though it includes none of the postprandial glucose. What's your
1: working hypothesis?
0: Probably hypercortisolemia. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting.
1: Yeah, interestingly, when I only wore the CGM for a few weeks, one of my kind of rules is that after I work out, I'm basically useless to do any cognitive task because I just basically stuporous. And what I noticed was that when I eat after a workout, and this again, we're going way into the realm of total speculation and of one anecdotal, but my blood glucose would drop after eating carbohydrates post workout. So I would go down to 50. And feel it, probably because I just have this really robust insulin response that's a holdover from the third phenotype, which is like the childhood obesity phenotype, which maybe there's like some increase in beta cell mass that occurs during growth period that you just have this hyperreactive system. And then you have to manage that a little bit differently, I think rather than, which again, for me, it ends up being that I'm the low carb phenotype, but maybe that phenotype is less common. Well,
0: I guess you could be multiple versions of this because I do think there's yet another phenotype, which is, I don't have a good way to describe it other than it's just the pure junk food over energy consumption phenotype. That is the kind that you've already sort of talked about, right? These are people that are eating probably far more carbohydrates and fat collectively than they can tolerate, not necessarily individually again, I don't even really have a, obviously my practice is not large enough to sample, to provide a meaningful input on what the prevalence of that would be in the United States. But I don't think any of these are particularly rare either. I mean, I think these are all quite common and I don't know that it's a third, a third, a third or anything like that. Or if you include your fourth one about the children or four of what we call post obese, I guess. But I don't know. I feel like, again, I don't deal with obesity much. So I don't really think about this problem constantly. But I know everybody, myself included, is sort of like, I'd like to be five pounds lighter. So it's a stubborn problem. It's one that evolution didn't have to deal with.
1: Although, I mean, there were periods during human evolution, I think, when you were in a calorie replete environment. So when we, the first men got to Australia, we basically butchered these mega fauna for the first thousand years and made them completely extinct. I think there was a period of human evolution where we just made this stepwise leap over every other species, every other species. And I think during that period, there were probably times of being, but unless that
0: interfered with reproduction, I'm not sure evolution would would have have a selection bias against it. If the glut of energy or if that extensive species domination didn't impair your ability to reproduce, I just don't know if there would have been enough evolutionary pressure to get you out of it. Yeah. I don't know either. (laughs) Do you have any thoughts on uric acid? We've never talked about this. I'm a big uric acid guy. How do you approach it? Well, are you more interested in your views than mine? It's something I check, but
1: the question is, is it an end product of some other process or is it a target in and of itself? And I don't know the answer to that.
0: The good news for you is I'm going to be interviewing Rick Johnson in a month. And Rick is a nephrologist at the University of Colorado. Amazing guy. And he's probably, the, not probably, I think he is unquestionably the world's expert on uric acid. And we're going to talk about this in great detail. So I don't want to steal any of that thunder other than to just say, I pay a lot of attention to uric acid. And I think it is both an absolute byproduct of a process, but I actually think it is an interesting target of therapy. And so I don't have a huge toolbox of drugs that I think should be always there, but allopurinol is one of them.
1: Allopurinol for the non-gout patient. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I haven't foraged into that territory. All
0: right. Well, let's change gears for a second. So exercise has played a pretty important role in your life, your transformation. By the way, I don't think we finished the story, which is probably my fault because I'm all over the place and scattered today. In medical school was the second time you underwent kind of a big physical metamorphosis. So in college, if I recall, it was huge calorie restriction, living on the treadmill, weight comes back in medical school. What was the second iteration of weight loss?
1: Yeah. So I basically chanced into a now friend of mine's CrossFit gym and he put me through a brutal workout. I didn't go back for four months because (laughs) I was so intimidated by the intensity, but the combination of the intensity of the workouts, the community, and actually the guy who started CrossFit, Greg Glassman, he actually, there's a dietary prescription, which was effectively an unprocessed food version of the paleo diet, which is There's a million ad nauseum. We could talk about what the definition is, but effectively it's an unprocessed food diet. And I don't recommend CrossFit to most of my patients. Let's start with that caveat because there's a lot that's great about it. But I think because it's run in a very decentralized fashion, the quality control for coaches can be a a little bit spotty and you really need to, to get your form down to safely execute movements. I think it's a big difference when you're a 25 year old with kind of a fair amount of elasticity and resilience. And when you're kind of 40 plus and have some now kind of postural things that are nearly calcified, where you've got some kyphotic posture that's going to affect your ability to extend your arms overhead, loss of hip mobility, et cetera. But so for me, I mean, I think there's a number of hormonal things that occur with a very high intensity workout that you probably don't get with pure strength training or pure cardio, just in terms of, I think... If we're talking about kind of metabolic byproducts as also being signaling molecules, I think there's probably with the lactate buildup, with the hypoxia that's induced, there's probably some adaptive changes that occur independent of just the strength gains that you get from a weightlifting
0: workout or the cardio gains that you get from a cardio workout. That's Which is interesting, by the way, because most of the research on HIT high intensity interval training really talks about how at a minute per minute basis it's a more efficient time way to get many of the benefits of aerobic exercise you're saying, yeah, that might all be true, but there may actually be benefits that you're unique to it. That are unique to hit.
1: Yeah. Well, I think you're also hitting a lot of the evidence-based points, which is training a muscle. If you're designing your rep ranges for a workout, like what are the rep ranges that you're doing? So a common one in CrossFit would be 21-15-9. You will either do a doublet or a triplet. So you'll do two exercises. One might be a barbell front squat. One might be a pull-up. And you're basically going to or near failure on each set, and you're accumulating volume that's in the 40 to 70 rep range, which if you look at the at the literature on, on muscle hypertrophy, kind of hits all of those points, and you're doing it in a very short amount of time. I think, I don't even know what we would measure to demonstrate the benefit of hit, although you could argue that, and you're accumulating a certain amount of time under tension, as well as, I don't know what the right aerobic stressor is, but I think there's a pretty strong consensus that it's moving away from your kind of mixed aerobic, anaerobic, near your kind of anaerobic threshold, steady state for 45 to 60 minutes, bifurcating that into shorter, more intense bouts and longer, less intense bouts. I think Even during that time, like in residency, I was doing triathlons. But how did you get from being highly overweight? So it was CrossFit, paleo diet.
0: Yeah, six months I went from being like clinically obese to relatively lean and fit. Right. So there's a lot of people listening to this who are just pissed off because you've had now twice you've demonstrated this ability to do what many people can't do. And I guess the only point is that didn't always work for you, like chronic caloric restriction.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think it also it becomes harder every time you do it. So every time I decide to make a life decision to kind of kick my training and kind of body composition into into focus, it's been harder every single time. And that might just be a function of aging, or maybe there's some additional adaptations that are occurring. Like, for example, the fat cells multiplying instead of just growing back to their normal size, which is a short way of making excuses. But So I was very lucky in that sense. But you still are in, it wasn't smooth sailing after that. It's always been a fixture in my life where I've been like, okay, this is kind of the eternal vigilance. The price of maintaining a normal weight is that I kind of always have to be really mindful of what I'm eating. I always, if I'm disinhibited in any way, I revert to the default bad habits
0: of processed food and eating my feelings and what have you. Were you metabolically unhealthy as well when you were overweight or were you metabolically reasonable and it was more of just the aesthetics that bothered you?
1: I suspect, I mean, I had the beginnings of acanthosis on the back of my neck, so I suspect there was some...
0: Can you tell people in English what that right? means? Right,
1: Acanthosis is basically a thickening, a velvety thickening of the skin that usually occurs on the back of the neck or on your extensor surfaces that is really tightly correlated correlated. correlated with hyperinsulinemia and diabetes. I mean, it's one of the kind of physical findings that you learn classically in medical school. And when you notice on yourself, you get pretty alarmed. And when I noticed it the second time, when I knew what it was called, it was pretty alarming. So yeah, I suspect
0: I was on that Spectrum, but I never did blood work at that time. And you sort of softly alluded to something, which is, you know, eating your feelings or something. I think you use the term. Do you think you do have kind of a still an odd relationship with food? I mean, I certainly feel like I do. I get people ask me all the time on social media, like, do you have an eating disorder? And I sort of joke and I say, no, I have disordered eating, which I think is technically a correct term, right? I, I probably do have disordered eating, though I don't think I have or ever had an eating disorder. I mean, my wife is very aware of my eating habits in response to mood. The worse mood I'm in, the worse I eat. It's very soothing for me. And it's funny, like I'm the worst offender because I'm a jerk about it too. Like I'll accuse her, not accuse her is the wrong word, but I'll blame her for the junk food in the house, but only when I'm eating it. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. So I was listening to your podcast with Jocko the other day and I was like, wow, I'm actually like the (laughs) antimatter to somebody like Jocko. It's like if we ever met, I think that it would just be a a complete black hole would would occur. Meaning you think you have no discipline. Right. It's interesting. It's like I have just hacked and slashed my way towards something that works on some level for me. In as much as there are like non-clinicians listening to this, yeah, every day is a struggle. There's very few days where I wake up and look in the mirror and don't say, you fat shit. Right. Like I probably would need to do any number of psychedelics and deep, deep work to kind of stop those voices and get those voices to go away. But we can make the right decisions in spite of what our our bodies and minds are telling us.
0: But let's play the thought experiment. If I had a pill that said, Paul, take this pill and you will have the body of Adonis, but you will view yourself as that fat piece of shit every day and hate yourself for it. Or you take this pill and you will be back to 290 pounds, but you will truly not care. And not in a nihilistic way, but you will be at peace with it. And let's assume, by the way, that in both cases you are metabolically healthy and that we're just purely dealing with the aesthetic. I'm thinking about this question as I ask it for myself, like which one of those two would you rather have? That's very, very hard to answer because... I think I was
1: always jealous of there was one other really fat kid in high school who just everything slid off, right? He was funny. If anybody even started to bully him, he would just throw it back at them in a very funny way and they'd be best buddies, you know, the next day. And I was always super jealous of that. I think... The difference between the internal and the external is that as I lost weight both times, it's not just about how you perceive yourself. It's truly about how others perceive you. Because as I was losing weight linearly, every 10 pounds was the number of people that say hi to you on the street, the number of people that smile at you, your experience is going to be, it's almost an impossible question to answer because your experience will be different because I've lived in both bodies. I've never had the Adonis, but yeah, you've been lean and not lean. Yeah. And so fine if I'm lean and miserable, but people treat me well versus fat and happy. But, and sometimes you don't now, I mean, as you get older, you go away from like bullying and like meanness towards just polite indifference. So it's not that people are actively mean to you, that you're just ignored or invisible. To people that you, let's say, want to date or it happens, even myself as a doctor, I have to fight feelings of judging patients or others that I encounter for being overweight. I have to actively fight that urge because I think whether we're culturally conditioned or maybe there's an evolutionary kind of heuristic around the health of a person and whatever, it becomes a very difficult question to answer. I think I would probably, I'm very used to feeling like I'd probably go with lean. I have to be honest.
0: Oh, it's interesting. I don't know what I would do if in those two very extreme artificial choices, my inkling would be to lean towards the happy fat, truthfully, just because I think in the end, without our thoughts, like the quality of our thoughts determines the quality of our life. And I just, I have so much practice at being miserable despite a great external set of circumstances that it really sucks. And I just, and I also think the world is so full of examples of the first scenario, which is people who do externally seem to have everything, which might include their body, who are just Absolutely and abjectly miserable. It seems like everything I'm trying to fight against personally. So I don't know. I think I'd actually take the other pill. Gun to the head probably would have to do the same, but I can't deny that I've had thoughts where it's like, yeah, I'd rather die than be fat again. And to be clear, I'm not even pushing back on you or judging in that because I think it's very genuine. I, and I can't relate because I've never been that overweight. What you describe of the feeling of people sort of thinking you're invisible. I think that there are obviously a lot of people who can feel that way, and I think there are people who felt that way not due to obesity, but due to some other affliction or perceived affliction. It's a broader issue, really, which is a very sad one.
1: I think we're very lucky as physicians in that we can sublimate some of these issues into being better doctors. Because that's, I think, where empathy comes in, where I can recognize a feeling that I've felt before in somebody else. And then I start to feel it as well. And that helps create a bond with somebody that you could potentially speak to them on a level that another doctor or another person is not able to speak with them on. That's interesting because
0: it's not necessarily the default, right? You could easily take a hundred other people like you who have undergone the same thing you've undergone, who would actually have lower empathy than a person who's been forever skinny, because you could also take the tact of, well, look, I know that one can lose the weight because I did it and I didn't do it once. I did it twice. So I'm a hero. You're a zero. Right. Except
1: that it took every ounce of my willpower, every ounce of my intelligence. I happened upon the lock and key that worked for me by pure chance. And so I would never begrudge another person that was not able to do it or hadn't found the way that worked for them yet. So yeah, I mean, I think it's funny in that, again, 100 years ago, this conversation would have been almost completely unnecessary because there'd be so few people for whom this was eating their daily thoughts. But the amount, if I could give myself the biggest piece of critical criticism I could give myself is, looking back over the last 10 years, is the number of hours I've spent, mental energy spent, thinking about food or punishing myself for making the wrong choice. It's just an enormous energy expenditure that could have gone to be towards me writing papers instead of just pontificating off the top of my
0: head about medical topics. Let's talk about your nutrition. So yeah. what, Steady state. Versus, yeah. If yeah, you're yeah. in the zone and you're doing everything correct and you're just trying to maintain where you are, what yeah. does your nutrition look like? So it's pretty
1: much, I kind of use a few different mental models in order to back calculate my ability to eat a certain thing. So set a baseline protein intake. That's all Going to be almost the same. So it's going to be 150 to 200 grams of protein. And and you weigh how much? I'm about 200 pounds, a little under 200 pounds, and that's six foot. So I'm probably about 18, 19% body fat if I'm being optimistic. You set your protein at a kind of static rate and that's usually going to be higher than general recommendations just because there's there's a few benefits that protein has that other macronutrients don't. So protein can be used as a building block. It can also be used as a fuel
0: and it has a, a large effect on satiety. Before we leave protein, are you agnostic to source? Do you have a point of view on how much should be animal versus plant? How much should come in the form of free amino acids versus whole foods? I think- Generally, it should all be whole foods, unless you've got a very specific sport goal that you need to hit. In an ideal world, you don't need protein bars and protein shakes. You're getting this out of food.
1: No. And I found also from a weight management and a weight loss standpoint, whenever I incorporate processed protein foods... They don't act in the same way that, let's say, a chicken breast would act in terms of like curbing hunger or allowing me to eat out a lower number of calories. That and it's sense. mostly animal protein or at least the primary I'm, source? Yeah. I'm mostly, yeah, mostly animal or weight, like um, Greek yogurt or something like that. We can have talks about that opens up a whole yeah, like, we'll, we'll come back of things to that, yeah. about, you can talk about the environmental impact, no, yeah, no, no, no. but you can also talk about the suffering impact. And I think somebody on Twitter was actually quite convincingly uh, arguing that, a carnivore diet is more vegan than a vegan diet, in that the total number of animals slain to meet your total yearly caloric needs from beef is two. You can get 400 plus pounds of edible meat from a cow, and a pound and a half or two pounds of meat a day is 3,000 calories. So, But in order to raise a field, you're killing ground-nesting birds and gophers, and you're destroying habitat, etc. So you could make There's some argument that if you want to decrease total.
0: The total sum of suffering. Total sum of suffering. Across all species. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: So plant proteins, it's just not a high enough energy. Like it's not a high enough ratio of protein to calories for it to be super useful. I think beans and legumes, for example, like they're like 50% carbohydrate. Can they be incorporated I think, yes, practically speaking, they're not big for me. All right, so you've set your protein at 150 to 200. What's the next macro you so target? So basically the next macro I target is fiber. So the next
0: macro is basically max out on fibrous non-starchy vegetables so are you counting soluble and insoluble fiber separately or are you this is mostly insoluble fiber correct
1: mostly insoluble fiber so you can kind of divide carbohydrates up into fibrous starchy and sugary and then you go from like least processed to most processed so if you have kind of a three by three matrix of then you're just going towards the direction of less processed more fibrous So that's actually the second macro I set. I try to avoid added oils. Even olive oil, I just try to use as much as necessary to cook food with. And then titrate carbohydrates based on how much I'm lifting, essentially. So back calculating that, okay, how many times am I... What is depleting my muscle glycogen to a point where I've earned 300 grams of carbohydrate? So a full body workout to failure generally is going to empty out your glycogen stores pretty quickly. What's your approach to structuring training? to hit different energy systems and then, and thereby influence your nutrition?
0: Well, the training is a part of four pillars, right? There's a stability pillar, a strength pillar, an aerobic efficiency pillar, which is the long below anaerobic threshold. That's the steady state lactate without net accumulation. So it's the 1.7 to 1.9 millimolar lactate Mm -hmm. zone too. And then the fourth piece of exercise is around the one to two times per week of super high intensity, like a Tabata type thing. Mm -hmm. So I don't use exercise to calibrate carbohydrate directly. I use CGM to calibrate carbohydrate instead. I basically set the carb limit. The starchy limit is a function of glucose disposal. So it's going to vary with sleep a lot, with cortisol, with exercise. And then that largely figures out for me or for somebody who's wearing a CGM that Okay. Like, and we set a target, right? Like our target is to be below hundred milligrams per deciliter.
1: Do you do large bolus carb feedings?
0: Me personally? Yeah. I often end up doing it because I'm often eating one to two meals per day. So if I'm eating carbs, I'm sort of doing that. But it's also important to understand, like I'm not optimizing in body composition at all. This is an area I know very little about. So I'm not, there must be something to eating constantly in modest amounts that's good for body composition because that's what bodybuilders seem to do. Every time I am i see a bodybuilder, he's eating six freaking meals a day.
1: Yeah. I don't know if that's artifact versus, and it's probably more about amino acid availability. I think the only place where you see a metabolic advantage is with having consistent amino acid availability by doing the, the more frequent protein feedings. But I think in terms of
0: metabolic rate, there's probably no. Oh yeah, yeah. Probably yeah, nothing yeah, on right yeah, now. Yeah. Okay, so you've got your carbs in there and what's the typical range you end up at depending on your exercise? You know what?
1: it varies really wildly. So I would say on like a rest day when I'm not doing heavy training, I have very little carbs and I just- Except yeah. for the insoluble fiber. Yes, exactly. And that looks like what, salads? So it would be anything colorful. So beets, even going towards beets, carrots, turnips, onions, garlic, anything green. And then that's basically most foods that are not grains. So where's your fat in there? The fat is usually... In the protein? In the protein or with like a tablespoon or two of olive. I mean, that adds up. So you're restricting fat? To a degree, yes. I think the reason I do that is because there's not a world where I can have high fat and high carbs together. Even under all the exercise in the world? I just tend to start to go off the rails a little bit. So if you want to be able to have the carbs, I keep the fat a little bit lower. But you can have pretty large carb boluses when you're training. And your protein is how lean? I mean, how much is chicken
0: versus fatty it's funny, beef? I
1: think I actually don't titrate this on a very exact level anymore. You kind of finally get a feel for sometimes you have fish, sometimes you have chicken. I don't trim the fat off of lean protein, even off of, of fatty protein, like a ribeye or what have you but it's kind of just protein and veggies is the mainstay and that's pretty much it and then I don't restrict fat, but I also just don't add it. So if you look at like, what's does a metabolically healthy person doing? They're kind of, they need to be intermittently in ketosis, essentially, right? So when there's carbs in the system, they burn the carbs. And when the carbs are gone, they dip into to fat stores for energy. So I think it's really hard to, if you're going to do like a ketogenic type of diet, you have to go all in. Have you noticed that at all with your patients where, or with yourself, where it's kind of a little bit kind of can throw the entire thing off or not so much?
0: I don't know. My first experience with ketosis was so long that it was a great experience in terms of what would three uninterrupted years of ketosis look like and what are the metabolic adaptations, some of which didn't kick in for 18 months. So that's a sort of different animal. I think just behaviorally, it's easier to be on a ketogenic diet if you stay on it as opposed to wax and wane from it. These days a week would be the longest I'd be on a ketogenic diet. It's not my mainstay diet. But I don't know the answer to your question, actually.
1: The interesting questions are like, okay, if we're going to do a high carb meal, does adding fat to it does that potentiate the insulin area under the curve or the glucose area under the curve? So if you have and this goes back to the potato diet thing where it's if you have all of the carbs at once without any fat around, is that metabolically more advantageous than we've already demonstrated in kind of some of the the diet studies that have been done that glycemic index is less useful than glycemic load and glycemic load might even be less useful than just insulin area under the curve or what have you. So I think what has also been shown is at least in preliminary studies, is that your body uses less insulin and has better metabolic response to having all of your carbs at once without any fat present in a given day rather than spacing it out in mixed meals. It's just
0: so funny when you think about it. It's so hard to just eat carbs without fat. Like how can you eat bread without olive oil? How can you eat pasta without oil? How can you eat, I don't know, pick your next, how can I eat like toast without tahina covered on it? You know, it's like everything I love is about carbs and fat combined. Ice cream. Have you ever done a low-fat
1: diet in recent memory?
0: No. No. What do you think would happen? I'd love to try it. In fact, I'm game to do it. Absolutely. I'm just trying to think how to operationalize it. Like, what would I actually eat? I could do breakfast pretty well because I freaking love me some steel cut oats. Like, I could eat steel cut oatmeal all day, every day. The problem is I love putting nuts on it. Well, there goes my low-fat, right? Well, I don't know. I mean, you could do... Let's say you had 80 grams of fat
1: a day to play with.
0: Yeah, I'd have to look at how many walnuts I could get away with. But like, so throw some walnuts, raisins, and eat some steel cut oats with a little bit of cashew milk yeah. or something like yeah. that. Yeah, okay, I could do that. Okay, so then what does lunch look like?
1: You can still have protein and veggies. And then you can now include, you sub out the olive oil and avocado and add a bunch of sweet potato. Oh, giving
0: up avocado and olive oil. Like those are just two things I love. But I'm game to do this experiment. I'm totally game to do this. But the protein has to be very lean then. I'm basically yes. stuck eating chicken breast, which yes. I'm not a fan of. Yeah,
1: you'd have to go leaner on the, pro- or at least trim the fat off of your protein. Yeah. And No eggs. I think eggs would actually fit in. Like 80 grams of fat is a fair amount to be able to play with if you're setting your macros. So So that's not really that low
0: fat, right? 80 grams is- let's say 60 grams. Okay, so say- 50 to 60 is probably more. Okay, so 50 grams of fat. So yeah, that's pretty low. Wow.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, 50 grams would be five tablespoons of, or four to five tablespoons of olive oil.
0: I eat that in a sitting without even blinking. Yeah, but now imagine you could have- all the potatoes and sweet yeah. potatoes I want. Yeah. But I can't put anything on them. I mean, the sweet potatoes is fine, but to eat a baked potato without butter yeah. or sour cream would be... The good news is I can go to soup plantation with my kids and get my coffers filled because soup plantation is basically like, the, it's just like all yeah. carbs all day. How much sugar can I eat? Like, can I think I... as much as you want. <laughs> But the fructose at some point is going to backfire.
1: Looking at the bodybuilders, because those carbs are not just going to, they're going to fuel your thermogenesis. And that thermogenesis is going to increase your exercise capacity. And you're going to be able to replenish your glycogen stores more quickly. Your
0: AGEs are going to go through the roof on this diet, by the way.
1: Well, you could argue that AGEs could go up just based on the, if you're eating a lot of high meat diet, just because of cooking. and Yeah, but
0: much less. I mean, there's one study that's actually looked at omnivores versus vegetarians and the vegetarians had much higher AGEs mm-hmm. because it's endogenous. The omnivores are getting obviously a higher exogenous amount. They're eating more AGEs, but the vegetarians, because they had higher fructose, fructose is eight to 10 times, I believe, more potent in the production of AGEs.
1: But I wonder if that's in the context of fat.
0: Don't know. I'm actually kind of excited about doing this experiment. So I wonder how long would be enough. This is going to be way harder than ketosis for me. Only because of familiarity. Like it's so easy for me to do a ketogenic diet. I can sort of do it in an airport. Because there's not, as you point out, you're still not able to eat much processed food because right. there ain't a lot of processed food that is high carb and low fat. It's right. usually a bolus full of polyunsaturated yep. omega-6 crap.
1: Yep. I think it was a Kevin Hall study that they did on the low fat versus low carb diet.
0: The low fat group that was really, really low fat. It was like 6% fat or something.
1: But they also cut out processed grains. like So there was no grains. It was basically a paleo diet, a low fat version of the paleo diet. The questions are, How quickly can you cycle back and forth? How long after a high carb, low fat meal are you now back in some version of a fat burning state versus you end up with that roller coaster that kind of you basically don't get back down to baseline before your next meal in terms of like your insulin or your glucose. I think that's where the trouble kind of starts.
0: Well, I'll give it a try. Now, the one thing that would make me abort this pretty quickly is if I was unhappy with my glucose levels. If all of a sudden I'm averaging 115 to 120 milligrams per deciliter of glucose, even if I'm losing weight or even if my body composition is improving, that's just a non-starter to me. I mean, I feel so strongly about the long-term health consequences of higher levels of glucose and higher levels of insulin that wouldn't matter, but it'd be interesting to see. I think
1: the parameters need to be that you're you're lifting on a, how often are you lifting? Three days, a three, week. three days a week. Yeah. So I think maybe you do it like a little bit less on your off days, but you go ham on your, on your lifting days. And I think, so three days a week is interesting because you can replenish glycogen stores from hepatic production via amino acids, probably on the order of being able to do it two times a week to get to fully replenish. If you're doing daily workouts, very difficult to get enough glycogen replenishment in between workouts from hepatic production. So that's why the carbs become quite a bit more useful when your training volume increases. And in fact, there's like no substitute for it because you can't do, I mean, you can't use fat for glycolytic activity. And so in order to get the intensity level up, you're going to need some amount of carbohydrate. No?
0: Oh, I agree. I completely agree. I think that I was talking about this with somebody yesterday. I was like, look, it would make no sense to me to be a cyclist in the Tour de France and be on a ketogenic diet. Not because the ketogenic diet doesn't afford a great aerobic efficiency that is 95% of that race, but because in the 5% of that race, when you have to be over the moon glycolytic, why would you risk getting blown out of the water when the race is won and lost in the 5%. The 95% when you guys are smoking and joking in the Peloton at an average power below 200 watts, that doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. That's not what the race is about. And yes, maybe the high carb guy has to eat more during that time and eat more carbs during that time than the ketogenic guy, but it doesn't matter. You're a professional cyclist. You're being paid to win a race and the race is won and lost on the basis of glycolytic energy. So just on first principles, it would make zero sense to me to be on a ketogenic diet if you're a professional cyclist. Mm -hmm. I'm using that as an example. Yeah, absolutely. And the same with any performance-based athlete. Mm -hmm.
1: You can probably get away with two high-intensity workouts a week eating relatively low carbohydrate. I think anything more than that. Probably now,
0: where I, the one place where I do think a ketogenic diet just has an enormous improvement is over ultra distance type events where sure. the race is not won and lost on the basis of your glycolytic capacity. It's basically won on the basis of your metabolic efficiency and your intestinal fortitude. And No, absolutely.
1: And I've seen that where it's just so hard to titrate glucose intake when you're going through that many I mean, how are you going to match the number of gels that you're going to have during a race to the amount of glycogen that you're going through?
0: Yeah, it's so funny. I once, when I was cycling a lot, I actually wanted to come up with an app that would do that based off your power meter. Because in cycling, you know your watts. At every moment in time, you know your watts and you know your heart rate. If you could do a series of calibrated VO2 tests where you give the full range of what your power output is, what your VO2, what your VCO2 is... You could actually reverse engineer at every given wattage and heart rate, what your energy expenditure is, and more importantly, what your RQ is, and therefore how many calories in any given moment. Because from wattage, you know exactly how many calories you're expending, and then you could determine how many of them. So, So I actually had this idea, which I built this for myself, but I thought it would be really cool if this were a living, breathing app that was paired to your Garmin or your SRM and giving you those data in real time. So the cyclist knew their glycogen debt by the hour. That's super easy to do. And if I wasn't such a lazy (laughs) piece of dirt, I would actually do it.
1: Yeah. Because I mean, I think muscle catabolism during those rides is a serious thing because you just don't have enough time to replace it. How do you prescribe exercise to your patients?
0: I want them doing all four things we talk about. Stability is the single most important piece. If you don't do stability work, none of this other stuff matters. Strength basically only in the context of appropriate stability, do I want them doing strength work. And I want to, I focus on hip hinging, pulling and pushing as the predominant things that you need to be doing each time you lift zone two is three hours a week is the minimum effective dose typically doled out in three sixties or four forty fives. And then as a bonus, potentially anaerobic depending on the needs, but we probably focus so much of our effort on stability, which is too broad a topic to.
1: Yeah. I mean, having gone through the CrossFit paradigm, I find that people are much more biomechanically resilient than we give credit for. So.
0: Until they're not. And you got to remember, I'm training for a different sport now, yeah, right? Yeah. The only sport I'm training for is being a hundred and being able to act like I'm 60. So I want to be like a functional 60 year old when I'm a hundred. There is no example from which we can draw on that. Like we're in totally uncharted territory and to be clear, it's not that I'm fixated on being a hundred, I'll probably won't even live to be a hundred, but to compete in the centenarian Olympics, which is this event I have at a hundred, I know that what that implies for me at 90, 80, 70, 60 is remarkable.
1: But the problem with focusing on, on stability to the, with a limited amount of training time is that you're missing out on the massive benefit of increasing muscle mass through strength training.
0: Oh, no, you need to be doing both. What I'm saying is if you just do strength training without stability, you're going to get injured sooner or later. So you might as well commit to stability right away and make that an important part of what you do so that you can, for the rest of your life, continue to move heavy amounts of weight. hundred percent agree with that. Yeah. But yeah, it's interesting with trying to figure
1: out the, what would you do as a, A simple way of calculating glycogen depletion.
0: Oh, I'd have to rely on this formula that I have. It's very easy to do on a bike because you get very accurate info. About power output. You know how many kilojoules you're expending. Basically, the wattage is giving you the kilojoule expenditure. And it's a total fluke of how the math works out. But every kilojoule expended on a bike is about a kilocalorie consumed. It actually wow. works out to that. Wow. It, to a first order approximation, they're the same number. So if you get off your bike and you've, in an hour, expended 870 kilojoules, oh. you've expended approximately 850, call it, calories. And then how do you determine what percentage of those were
1: from glycogen versus... You would uh, have to
0: be able to do this modeling ex- exercise of knowing what the Q power or- was. Yeah, knowing what the power was and then knowing from when you've done respiratory testing what your vo2 and vco2 were at the different power levels got it got it yeah because you kind of have to just fudge it otherwise oh of course you do And, and that's where the cgm becomes handy Is you sort of learn um oh well guess what like once glucose starts to really shoot up you've overdone it yeah
1: but i keep learning things it's like you actually don't need glucose for Even a max effort sprint under 10 seconds, right? Because you're only going through the creatine kinase system. And so then it's how many repeated bouts before you start to kind of deplete those stores and then...
0: The creatine phosphates? Yeah.
1: So I think it takes like 30 seconds to replete the first time. And then after you do it twice, it's now two to three minutes.
0: Yeah. I mean, Tabata gives us an insight into that because I actually think, even though Tabata was classically described as 20 on 10 off for four minutes... I find it physiologically just as damaging, meaning it's just as painful to do 10 on 20 off for four minutes because you can go so much harder in the 10 seconds than you can the 20. In fact, Alex Hutchinson, who I'd love to have on the podcast, he wrote a book about endurance, the limits of endurance. And I think in it, he describes that Basically, we are not capable of all out activity for more than about 10 seconds. Yes, I would agree with that. Even at 20 seconds, when we think we're going all out, we are not. And you can tell this if you're playing this game on a doing like on an air bike, which is great because one, it's so exhausting and two, you can see your power. My wattage numbers that I can hold for 10 seconds are 50% higher than what I can hold when I do the 20 second version of the Tabata. I believe it. Yeah. I mean, Tabata
1: was, I think there was no kind of algorithm to determine the the on-off frequency. I think it was just... Oh, it was totally uh, empirical. I think it wasn't even empirical. I think it was just arbitrary. Um, Possible. Is he still alive? I'm not sure. But I don't think he tested 10 on- Yeah, he didn't
0: do. Yeah, he didn't do. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think it was just, I'm going to give some amount of time for recovery. And then I think what you need to triangulate around is in order to have maximum result from a session, it's How much glycogen did I deplete? What was my maximum? I think it's also going to be volume. So if you're doing Tabata push-ups and your push-ups go from, let's say, 10, 9, 8, and then 3, 3, 3, because you've got nothing in the tank, that's kind of like those are wasted bouts. Whereas you could have gotten more time under tension and more total volume by increasing the the time in between but I guess you're optimizing for different things at that point but you're basically going straight it's effectively doing one set to failure versus multiple sets to failure
0: yeah I think tabata gets misused a lot I really think in its purest application you should only be able to do it once and that's why I get such a kick out of like these stupid tabata classes I see like on peloton and stuff it's like okay I get it you're sort of whatever you have to say that you're doing some cool class and might as well call it tabata because yeah. that's fashionable but it's a real disservice to the physiology. You know, you can't do 60 minutes of Tabata.
1: No, you can't even do five minutes. of.
0: I think I posted a picture once of me, like I do one Tabata a week. The second time in the week I do high intensity, it's not even a Tabata that one, four minutes a week. I can't have anything. It's always at the end of my workout. I can't have anything scheduled for 60 minutes after. So I need 30 full minutes just to scrape myself off the floor And have a shower and get dressed. That's a 30 minute exercise. And I'm like, if you're not leaving that much of yourself out there, which is why I'm, I think there's something more to that than just the glycogen depletion and the CP turnover.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you look at athletes training for like sprinting events, I mean, they're taking five to seven minutes between 10 second bouts. So I guess it's like, you just have to figure out what you're optimizing for. And if you want to get faster Certainly, I don't think that Tabata would be useful because you're not actually... Only your first set is probably going to be contributing to your forward progress on that. Yeah. But anyway.
0: Well, you know, it's sort of funny. It's almost like the last 20 minutes. I don't even think we realized we were being recorded. This is fully degenerated into... This was my plan. This was just us playing patty cakes. But anyway, I hope the listeners have found that interesting. Yeah. Well, look, man, this was super interesting. I really enjoyed this discussion. And I think there's a lot in here to unpack. I don't even know where to begin for listeners. But I think in terms of the discussion on weight loss, the philosophy around medicine, your own nutrition stuff is super interesting. And I really am considering trying this experiment again, provided it fits within the confines of my sort of glucose requirements. So anyway, man, I really appreciate this. This was super interesting. And I think I brought more questions to the table than
1: answers, but
0: I know I'm a little self-conscious. I feel like I (laughs) took up too much air in the room during this interview. I I
1: heard you say before, and I've noticed that you're very retentive with sharing stuff. So it was my plan to get you to start to spill the beans. (laughs) Well, it's not that. It's just like I
0: get interviewed on podcasts where I get asked the questions, but I feel like on my podcast, it's no one wants to hear my dumb stories. We're here to hear your dumb stories. We can share our dumb stories together. I guess. All right, man.
1: All right. Well, thank you so, so much for having me, Peter.
0: Thanks, Paul. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Drive. If you're interested in diving deeper into any topics we discuss, we've created a membership program that allows us to bring you more in-depth, exclusive content without relying on paid ads. It's our goal to ensure members get back much more than the price of the subscription. Now, to that end membership benefits include a bunch of things. One, totally kick-ass comprehensive podcast show notes that detail every topic, paper, person, thing we discuss on each episode. The word on the street is nobody's show notes rival these. Monthly AMA episodes or ask me anything episodes, hearing these episodes completely. Access to our private podcast feed that allows you to hear everything without having to listen to spiels like this. The Qualies, which are a super short podcast, typically less than five minutes, that we release every Tuesday through Friday, highlighting the best questions, topics, and tactics discussed on previous episodes of The Drive. This is a great way to catch up on previous episodes without having to go back and necessarily listen to everyone. Steep discounts on products that I believe in, but for which I'm not getting paid to endorse and a whole bunch of other benefits that we continue to trickle in as time goes on. If you want to learn more and access these member-only benefits, you can head over to peteratiamd.com forward slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all with the ID Peter You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast player you listen on. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. Finally, I take conflicts of interest very seriously for all of my disclosures and the companies I invest in or advise, please visit peteratiamd.com forward slash about where I keep an up-to-date and active list of such companies.